<laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> Who's that? Drive somewhere else. Close it the road. Been, it is. It is. Uh... Close the road. Can't you? T- can't you see we're recording? Hello and welcome back to episode 28 of Double Reel. This is the second reel of our monthly magazine-style podcast for film nerds. Hopefully you've caught up with the first reel, had a brief intermission, and refueled ready to take on this mighty second instalment of Nerdy Film Chat. If you haven't caught the first reel yet, please do go back to your app and download and listen to it, so you're up to date with all the features we've covered already this month. These include our roundup of news and spotlight on some of the films we watched this month, our classic and recommended feature Under the Skin, our hidden gem Two Days in the Valley, our one that got away about the unrealised blockbuster project Isobar, and our remake Hate Watch of Solaris. Now in Reel 2, we bring you our big conversation where we tackle a weighty topic and give it a fuller, i.e. longer, discussion. First, a very warm welcome back to my co-host, James Adamson. Thank you very much. Let's get back into it. So the topic of this big conversation, as we uh, highlight at the top of Reel 1, uh, and at the end of it actually, is sequel syndrome, uh, Hollywood's propensity to... Uh, follow up successful films with another another dollop of the same with uh, varying results. James, you suggested this topic for the big conversation. Why don't you kind of introduce it, set out any kind of you know opening argument or position, and you know what what you'd like to explore on this topic? Well, it was after what you said in the last um, podcast about the Thor uh, film, Thor: Love and Thunder, being a bit shit, and obviously that's like a fourth sequel, I suppose, but. Um, yeah. I think it got me thinking about how good Thor Ragnarok was and how disappointing or um, divisive Thor Love and Thunder was. So I thought, why don't we analyse the problems that sequels tend to have? Not all of them are rubbish, um, but why don't we have a little discussion about why they're bad? Are they always bad because the studio's lazy, because Mm -hmm. they just want to churn out some money, or are they bad because they've ran out of ideas and they tried something new and it didn't quite work? So yeah, I thought that'd be an interesting thing to look at. Yeah, I agree. When you suggested it, I thought that would be good. And it, it kind of, it's interesting that it was after you suggested that, that, uh, you know, Mike, friend of the pod, wrote in and said, maybe one day you can do a big conversation about how Marvel is screwing the pooch with its, uh, you know, they're all, you know dragging its uh, its franchise down. So it's obviously other people have, are conscious of this as well. And it's interesting what you say about, you know, Thor, Thor Ragnarok being like a fourth in the sister, that's a third sequel or however you do it. But we'll obviously touch on, you know, when so many sequels happen that it's, you know, the Lord of Venetian Returns has really kicked in. But for, for Thor Love and Thunder itself, it's almost like Thor Love and Thunder is just like a sequel to Thor Ragnarok in a way. Do you, do you see what I mean? I know it's I know it's continuing the overall story of Thor, but it was almost like Thor Ragnarok was a fresh start, and I almost felt like Thor: Love and Thunder because it's the same yeah. director as you know Taika Waititi as Ragnarok. It was like, although it's the fourth instalment, it was almost like Thor: Ragnarok was like it, it, like its own thing, and, and Thor: Love and Thunder, while it's part of the Marvel universe, was a sequel to just that movie. Do, 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 do you see where I'm coming from? Yeah, because they've made such a balls up of. Marvel sequels in the past, it you've you've often found that they've given a new director of the reign. So I would feel like um, Avengers: Age of Ultron was shit, but I wouldn't call Avengers: Infinity War a sequel to it. If you get what I mean? Because yeah. it's two totally different directors. Yeah. yeah. Um. I what I think we should maybe av- not avoid, but not only look at superhero sequels. Although yeah. it tends to be superhero sequels that are shit. Um. 
Well, yeah, I know. I, I agree because I think one of the things we'll talk about is, you know, when is a sequel not a sequel? I mean, if you set up a franchise and every film is like an instalment in some bigger picture, does is that the same as like the normal Hollywood routine of here's a good film, let's do a sequel to it, which kind of predates the superhero world a bit, doesn't it? So yeah, yeah we can, we can get into it. So, um, as as you'll expect, I always have a bit of kind of a, a an interest in looking at like the the, the history. Uh, behind things like this and in terms of the history of the sequel obviously i think you'd agree mate that sequels have become much more frequent you know in more recent times i mean before you were born but if the history of the cinema goes back over 100 years it feels like in the last 40 or 50 say maybe 40 that that the sequel became uh, such a fixture do you know what i mean yeah um it's interesting though isn't it i think it's because Cinema really started to develop into these iconic films, you know. While we had the kind of golden age of cinema, you know, especially back in you know the times of like Hitchcock and Jamie Stewart and all those people, that I feel like cinema really came into its own with stories like I would say like The Godfather and Alien. That's when I feel like cinema became films for me. Before that, it was just films were just kind of like theater, but on the screen, if that makes sense. Whereas in the later eras, you kind of found that wow, these new stories are completely interesting sorry not completely interesting they're much more interesting than what we've been seeing before so we want more of that story or that universe or that world that we're being shown so i don't know if that's like a, a conscious shift that people made or they just kind of thought wow these films are like they're progressing the technologies technologies um progressing so why why are we not getting more of these films whereas you know nobody wants a sequel to it's a wonderful life <laughs> you know what i mean yeah i mean i look i think I think you definitely pinpoint something in which from 1970 onwards things significantly changed and people called it the new Hollywood. I'll often uh, point out a book uh, by Peter Biskind, a non-fiction book. There's also a, a documentary film based on the book which you can see called Easy Riders Raging Bulls, which is all about how the new Hollywood from like the late 60s onwards completely changed things. Um, other people might draw a different year zero to that, mate, obviously, because some people might say that cinema really came into its own in, like, say, the 40s when uh, talkies technology really sort of got got down and you could make films, you know, in the noir era, the classic noir era, and, you know, everyone, you know, everyone will look at certain, you know, times, but you definitely hit something insofar as sequels. Um, it's funny because the sequels weren't unknown early on in Hollywood. For example, in the early 20s, there was a famous film with Rudolph Valentino called The Shake, a uh, huge hit, sort of, you know, set in, you know, in, in, you know, in, in the desert. And Rudolph Valentino, who was a massive matinee idol at the time, played, uh, you know, a, a, an Arab, uh, or a very sort of exotic sort of Arab with a sort of a romantic story. That was such a big hit. They absolutely, you know, were so motivated to make a second one. It's also very common in horror films. Things like Frankenstein, The Invisible Man, King Kong and Dracula used to routinely get sequels back in the day. Um, then in the 50s and 60s, they started to do more sequels sort of generally, but there was an assumption that if you did a sequel, you would do it quicker and cheaper than the first film and you wouldn't expect to make as much money. It was like, yeah, let's crank that out. You wouldn't necessarily guarantee to sign up all the original you know, cast and directors. You would say, oh, let's do it, but it was... It was seen as a bit lower grade, and the 70s definitely started to change that. And while there's an element of the 70s was a more, it's seen as being a more creative and, and you know, a step forward uh, as an era because of the likes of Scorsese and, and Coppola and people like that. But obviously the sequel is always a commercial venture, isn't it? Hollywood's always looking to make a bit more of the money 
that was made the time before. But that's definitely when you started to see more sequels. One of the biggest hits in 1970 was Love Story. That got a sequel. French Connection, which we did on this podcast, got a sequel. Rocky got a sequel. So did Jaws. God, you know, you talked about Godfather 2. Dirty Harry got a sequel. There was a series of disaster movies called Airport. And, you know, the, the, where they made new installments and Planet of the Apes and so on. So it's definitely been a thing. And then, and then in the 80s, it was just kind of expected. If the first film was good and successful, you'd get a sequel. It's just guaranteed. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I've occasionally sort of looked at, like, the biggest box office films of, of, of the year. And if you're looking at about 1985, um, it's still the majority of hits in, the, like, the top 20 or 30 are new stories. But you start to see sequels. 20 years later, the 90s, maybe into 2000, the majority of top films at the box office are sequels. And then, like you say, you pointed out, maybe we won't do the superhero film because that's almost a different thing. Once the superhero era comes along, it's more there's more franchises, but there are still a lot of sequels. Um, so I guess, I guess the first question is, why do you think they make sequels to films? Um... I think it depends. I think, like, on the eras we've just touched upon, I think it was obviously less about the box office. I mean, Hollywood's always been about the the box office sales, but I feel like it was... It's almost like killing two birds with one stone because the production companies wanted to make the money and the directors wanted to explore their stories and just simply make good films. So if the first one did well, then... The second film allows the director to make a, another story that expands on his storytelling, his franchise universe, or whatever you want to call it. And it's a win-win for the um, for everyone because the studio then gets to make money. So I think it depends on who you are. If you are, for example, a loyal fan base like Star Wars, then it's it helps you because you get to see these new characters and this really rich um, story that they're trying to tell. Um if you're the production company, then you're getting to um, make a lot of money because if you're making a Star Wars film or a, a superhero film, then you're pr- pretty much guaranteed to make money unless you're Batgirl. But it's yeah, I think people want people want sequels for different things, but it, it has to be kind of like a happy marriage of all those things as as to why or how that sequel gets made. I mean, you're you're describing why. You, why it would be justified to make a sequel almost, aren't you? Yeah. If you're a fan, you want to see more of the story and the characters you love. If you're a director, you're getting to explore those characters you've already, you know, begin to, began to introduce and then flesh out some more. And if you're the actor, I don't know if you're really into the story or you're just wanting to get paid or you're the production company, you want to make a lot of money from this film. So, yeah, it just it just depends on who you are. Um, there's a variety of reasons as to why they get yeah. made. And obviously, if 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 they haven't actually got a genuinely good reason like what you described to make a sequel, that's often why they're not very good, right? Not the only reason, but that's often why. If they if they just say without any kind of thought or imagination, we should just do another one of those because first one made a lot of money. That's that's that increases the chances of the sequel not being very good, right? Yeah. It's yeah, it's interesting because when I was sort of you know making some notes for this. Uh, uh, topic i i wrote down two questions why do they make sequels why are they often crap do you know what i mean because that's kind of the gist of when you yeah. suggested the topic that, that you know that that's you know it's very reductive but it's, and i wrote my answer next to each question uh, which was just lots of dollar signs now i'm, I'm being sarcastic obviously like a bit slightly facetious hmm. why do they make sequels because they want to make a lot of money why are they often crap because all they want to do is make money rather than make a good film um now 
what I, what I mean by that, um, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure you've noticed. That I've mentioned William Goldman before. He's one of the most famous screenwriters, and he wrote a really good book uh, about Hollywood. A couple of really good books about Hollywood. Um, he won Oscars for Butch Cassidy and All the President's Men. He wrote scripts for things like Princess Bride, Misery. Um, what, when he wrote a book about his experience in Hollywood, what, one of his key messages was: nobody knows anything. People have put together great casts to make films based on the best script they've ever read, based on a hugely successful source material like a great novel that was a big hit. A director mm-hmm. has just won an Oscar and is killing it at the box office, and they put all of that together, and the film flops and, it, and isn't very good. Yeah. And then films that no one gave a chance to turn out to be massive hits, yeah? So anyone who's th- who thinks they know what the formula is for the next film to be good and successful, they don't. It's a, it's a, it's a massive kind of gamble each just time. just depends, doesn't it? It depends, um... it depends on so many things. Now, obviously, when they did The Godfather, they took a hugely successful book that everybody loved. They got a hot young director who'd, who'd won an Oscar for his writing and seemed to understand the material. Somebody took a chance on Coppola. He put together a, a great cast you know, and, and that film was a hit. But bear in mind that Coppola had to fight all the way to make that film the right way because the studio system yeah. kind of always screws you over. But what's interesting, when I talked about those early films, you know, The Son of the Shake, now that was, it was a bit more of a rarity back then to have sequels. And outside of, um, of you know, very much genre films, especially horror films, with the occasional detective story like The Thin Man, they would get sequels, right? But a lot of other films kind of wouldn't. And that's, that's not just, I think, because Hollywood was more high-minded back then about being original, because honestly, you know, the, the executives have always been the same, right? The creative people want to do something new. The money people, you know, just want, you know, I'll quote Keith Richard again, they want to put bit tins of beans on the shelf, you know? Mm. Um, but back then, in the studio system, especially before it all broke up in the 50s, you, you didn't need it to be a sequel, Right. There's a, there's a line in, in Barton Fink, the Coen Brothers film about a screenwriter having a nervous breakdown. And they say, um, I know we love the, the script you wrote and, and we love all your kind of very artistic writing from your play in New York, but what we'd like you to work on is the script for a Wallace Beery wrestling picture. And the Coen Brothers are bigger aficionados of the old Hollywood. And what that means by the Wallace Beery wrestling picture is that Wallace Beery was a, a successful actor back in the day and a lot of his films would, would, would be about a wrestler. And he's more or less the same character, yeah? More or less the same storyline. Uh, and the same thing plays out every time. And it's not a sequel, and it's not a remake, but kind of they're all the same. In the same way that, like, nowadays, um, Liam Neeson seems to be making the same movie every time, even though they change the story, you know, the, 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 the very top Older man has a vengeful cause yeah. or something like that. Yeah, yeah. he doesn't, often doesn't even have to change his wardrobe, you know? Um, <laughs> and... Uh, uh, Howard Hawks, who's regarded as one of the greatest directors of all time, revered by John Carpenter, who's one of my favourite directors of all time, he made Rio Bravo about five times. One of the time it was called Rio Lobo, another time it was called something else. And the script would land on John Wayne's doorstep because he was the same guy every time. It would come through his letterbox and and, and, and John Wayne would call Howard Hawks up and says, I got the script, I'm not going to read it because this is just Rio Bravo again, isn't it? So I'm, yeah, let's do it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it was like, sure. Um, so they've always been kind of let's do the same thing again you know um, uh, Bogart and Bacall worked really well into Have and Have Not let's let's have them again and we'll change the movie to fit the, the stars um, but Bergman and, 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 and Bogart worked really well in, uh, in Casablanca let's put them in something again so Hollywood's always done this so the sequel is almost just like you know the perfection of that but to go back to the um, William Goldman thing about no one knows anything 
they're always looking for the slightly surer thing. I know I talk a lot, and I know you talk, about, you, you talk a lot too, about clueless executives ruining things. Mm. But to give them just a little bit of a, just to let them off a little bit, given how hard it is to predict what's going to work and what isn't, and given how expensive films are to make, right? Mm. You can understand them wanting to go for the safest bet of what to do next. Oh, yeah, no, totally. And, and, and that's it's uh, like, th- th- this worked. So it's not just this made money last time. It's this worked last time. Let's do that again. Do you know what I mean? We, because they don't know what works, right? <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> Who's that? Drive somewhere else. Close the road. Been, it is, it is, uh, Close the road. Can't you, t- can't you see we're recording? Hello and welcome back to episode 28 of Double Reel. This is the second reel of our monthly magazine-style podcast for film nerds. Hopefully you've caught up with the first reel, had a brief intermission, and refueled ready to take on this mighty second instalment of Nerdy Film Chat. If you haven't caught the first reel yet, please do go back to your app and download and listen to it, so you're up to date with all the features we've covered already this month. These include our roundup of news and spotlight on some of the films we watched this month, our classic and recommended feature Under the Skin, our hidden gem Two Days in the Valley, our one that got away about the unrealised blockbuster project Isobar, and our remake Hate Watch of Solaris. Now in Reel 2, we bring you our big conversation where we tackle a weighty topic and give it a fuller, i.e. longer, discussion. First, a very warm welcome back to my co-host, James Adamson. Thank you very much. Let's get back into it. So the topic of this big conversation, as we uh, highlight at the top of Reel 1, uh, and at the end of it actually, is sequel syndrome, uh, Hollywood's propensity to... Uh, follow-up successful films with another another dollop of the same with uh, varying results. James, you suggested this topic for the big conversation. Why don't you kind of introduce it, set out any kind of you know opening argument or position, and you know what what you'd like to explore on this topic? Well, it was after what you said in the last um, podcast about the Thor uh, film, Thor: Love and Thunder, being a bit shit, and obviously that's like a fourth sequel, I suppose, but um, yeah. I think it got me thinking about how good Thor Ragnarok was and how disappointing or um, divisive Thor Love and Thunder was. So I thought, why don't we analyse the problems that sequels tend to have? Not all of them are rubbish, um, but why don't we have a little discussion about why they're bad? Are they always bad because the studio's lazy, because Mm. they just want to churn out some money, or are they bad because they've ran out of ideas and they tried something new and it didn't quite work? So yeah, I thought that would be an interesting thing to look at yeah i agree when you suggested i thought that would be good and it it kind of it's interesting that it was after you suggested that that uh you know mike friend of the pod wrote in and said maybe one day you can do a big conversation about how marvel is screwing the pooch with its uh you know they're all you know dragging its uh its franchise down so it's obviously other people are conscious of this as well and it's interesting what you say about you know Thor, Thor Ragnarok being like a fourth in the sister. That's a third sequel, or however you do it. But we'll obviously touch on you know when so many sequels happen that it's you know the Lord Diminishing Returns has really kicked in. But for for Thor: Love and Thunder itself, it's almost like Thor: Love and Thunder is just like a sequel to Thor: Ragnarok in a way. Do you, do you see what I mean? I know it's I know it's continuing the overall story of Thor, but it was almost like Thor: Ragnarok was a fresh start. And I almost felt like Thor: Love and Thunder because it's the same yeah. director as you know Taika Waititi as Ragnarok. It was like, although it's the fourth instalment, it was almost like Thor: Ragnarok was like it, it, like its own thing, and, and Thor: Love and Thunder, while it's part of the Marvel universe, was a sequel to just that movie. Do, 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 do you see where I'm coming from? 
Yeah, because they've made such a balls up of Marvel sequels in the past, it you've you've often found that they've given a new director of the reign. So I would feel like um, Avengers: Age of Ultron was shit, but I wouldn't call Avengers: Infinity War a sequel to it. If you get what I mean? Because yeah. they're two totally different directors. Yeah. yeah. Um, I what I think we should maybe av- not avoid, but not only look at superhero sequels. Although yeah. it tends to be superhero sequels that are shit. Um. Well, yeah, I know I, I agree because I think one of the things we'll talk about is, you know, when is a sequel not a sequel? I mean, if you set up a franchise in every film as like an instalment in some bigger picture, does is that the same as like the normal Hollywood routine of here's a good film, let's do a sequel to it, which kind of predates the superhero world a bit, doesn't it? So oh, yeah. yeah, we can we can get into it. So um as as you'll expect, I always have a bit of kind of a, a an interest in looking at like the the, the history uh, behind things like this. And in terms of the history of the sequel, obviously, I think you, you'd agree, mate, that sequels have become much more frequent, you know, in more recent times. I mean, before you were born, but if the history of the cinema goes back over a hundred years, it feels like in the last forty or fifty, say maybe forty, that that the sequel became uh, such a fixture. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um... It's interesting though, isn't it? I think it's because cinema really started to develop into these iconic films, you know. While we had the kind of golden age of cinema, you know, especially back in, you know, the times of like Hitchcock and Jamie Stewart and all those people that that I feel like cinema really came into its own with stories like I would say like The Godfather and Alien. That's when I feel like cinema became films for me before that. It was just films were just kind of like theatre but on the screen, if that makes sense. Whereas in the later eras, you kind of found that, wow, these new stories are completely interesting. Sorry, not completely interesting. They are much more interesting than what we've been seeing before. So we want more of that story or that universe or that world that we're being shown. So I don't know if that's like a, a conscious shift that people made or they just kind of thought, wow, these films are like, they're progressing, the technologies, technologies um, progressing. So why... Why are we not getting more of these films? Whereas, you know, nobody wants a sequel to It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I look, I think I think you definitely pinpoint something in which from 1970 onwards, things significantly changed and people called it the new Hollywood. I'll often uh, point that out to a book uh, by Peter Biskind, the nonfiction book. There's also a, a documentary film based on the book, which you can see called Easy Riders Raging Bulls, which is all about how the new Hollywood from like the late 60s onwards completely changed things. Um, other people might draw a different year zero to that, mate, obviously, because some people might say that cinema really came into its own in, like, say, the 40s when uh, talkies technology really sort of got got down and you could make films, you know, in the noir era, the classic noir era, and, you know, everyone, you know, everyone will look at certain, you know, times, but you definitely hit something insofar as sequels. Um, it's funny because the sequels weren't unknown early on in Hollywood. For example, in the early 20s, there was a famous film with Rudolph Valentino called The Shake, a uh, huge hit, sort of, you know, set in, you know, in, in, you know, in, in the desert. And Rudolph Valentino, who was a massive matinee idol at the time, played, uh, you know, a, a, an Arab, uh, or a very sort of exotic sort of Arab with a sort of a romantic story. That was such a big hit. They absolutely, you know, were so motivated to make a second one. It's also very common in horror films. Things like Frankenstein, The Invisible Man, King Kong and Dracula used to routinely get sequels back in the day. Um, then in the 50s and 60s, they started to do more sequels sort of generally, but there was an assumption that if you did a sequel, you would do it quicker and cheaper than the first film and you wouldn't expect to make as much money. It was like, yeah, let's crank that out. You wouldn't necessarily 
guarantee to sign up all the original you know cast and directors you would say oh let's do it but it was it was seen as a bit lower grade and the 70s definitely started to change that and while there's an element of the 70s was a more it's seen as being a more creative and, and you know a step forward uh, as an era because of the likes of Scorsese and, and Coppola and people like that. But obviously the sequel is always a commercial venture, isn't it? Hollywood's always looking to make a bit more of the money that was made the time before. But that's definitely when you started to see more sequels. One of the biggest hits in 1970 was Love Story. That got a sequel. French Connection, which we did on this podcast, got a sequel. Rocky got a sequel. So did Jaws. God, you know, you talked about Godfather too. Dirty Harry got a sequel. There was a series of disaster movies called Airport, and you know that the, where they made new installments and Planet of the Apes and so on. So it's definitely been a thing. And then in the eighties, it was just kind of expected. If the first film was good and successful, you get a sequel. It's just guaranteed. Mm. Um, and you know, I I've occasionally sort of looked at like the biggest box office films of 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 the year, and if you're looking at about nineteen eighty five. Um, it's still the majority of hits in the, like the top 20 or 30 on new stories, but you start to see sequels. 20 years later, the 90s, maybe into 2000, the majority of top films at the box office are sequels. And then, like you say, you pointed out, maybe we won't do the superhero film because that's almost a different thing. Once the superhero era comes along, it's more, there's more franchises, but there are still a lot of sequels. Um, so I guess, I guess the first question is, why do you think they make sequels to films? Um, I think it depends. I think, like, on the eras we've just touched upon, I think it was obviously less about the box office. I mean, Hollywood's always been about the the box office sales, but I feel like it was... It's almost like killing two birds with one stone because the production companies wanted to make the money and the directors wanted to explore their stories and just simply make good films. So if the first one did well, then the second film allows the director to make a, another story that expands on his storytelling, his franchise universe, or whatever you want to call it. And it's a win-win for, the, um, for everyone because the studio then gets to make money. So I think it depends on who you are. If you are, for example, a loyal fan base like Star Wars, then it's it helps you because you get to see these new characters and this really rich um, story that they're trying to tell. Um, if you're the production company, then you're getting to um, make a lot of money because if you're making a Star Wars film or a, a superhero film, then you're pr- pretty much guaranteed to make money unless you're Batgirl. But it's... Yeah, I think people want people want sequels for different things, but it, it has to be kind of like a happy marriage of all those things as as to why or how that sequel gets made. I mean, you're, you're describing why you why it would be justified to make a sequel almost, aren't you? Yeah. If you're a fan, you want to see more of the story and the characters you love. If you're a director, you're getting to explore those characters you've already, you know, begin to, began to introduce and then flesh out some more. And if you're the actor, I don't know if you're really into the story or you're just wanting to get paid or you're the production company, you want to make a lot of money from this film. So, yeah, it just it just depends on who you are. Um, there's a variety of reasons as to why they get yeah. made. Now, and obviously, if, if, a, if they haven't actually got a genuinely good reason like what you've described to make a sequel, that's often why they're not very good, right? Not the only reason, but that's often why. If they, if they just say, without any kind of thought or imagination, we should just do another one of those because first we made a lot of money. That's that's that increases the chances of the sequel not being very good, right? Yeah. It's yeah, it's interesting because when I was sort of you know making some notes for this uh, uh, 
topic, I, I wrote down two questions. Why do they make sequels? Why are they often crap? Do you know what I mean? Because that's kind of the gist of when you yeah. suggested the topic that, that you know, that, that's, you know, it's very reductive. But it's, and I, I wrote my answer next to each question, uh, which was just lots of dollar signs. Now, I'm, I'm being sarcastic, obviously, like a bit slightly facetious. Hmm. Why do they make sequels? Because they want to make a lot of money. Why are they often crap? Because all they want to do is make money rather than make a good film. Um, now, what I, what I mean by that? Um, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure you've noticed. Uh, I've mentioned William Goldman before. He's one of the most famous screenwriters, and he wrote a really good book uh, about Hollywood. A couple of really good books about Hollywood. Um, he won Oscars for Butch Cassidy and All the President's Men. He wrote scripts for things like Princess Bride and Misery. Um, what, when he wrote a book about his experience in Hollywood, what, one of his key messages was: nobody knows anything. People have put together great casts to make films based on the best script they've ever read based on a hugely successful source material like a great novel that was a big hit. A director yeah. has just won an Oscar and is killing it at the box office and they put all of that together and the film flops and, it, and isn't very good, yeah? And then films that no one gave a chance to turn out to be massive hits, yeah? So anyone who's, who thinks they know what the formula is for the next film to be good and successful, they don't. It's a, it's a, it's a massive kind of gamble each just time. It just depends, doesn't it? It depends, um... it depends on so many things. Now, obviously... When they did The Godfather, they took a hugely successful book that everybody loved. They got a hot young director who'd, who'd won an Oscar for his writing and seemed to understand the material. Somebody took a chance on Coppola. He put together a, a great cast, you know, and, and that film was a hit. But bear in mind that Coppola had to fight all the way to make that film the right way because the studio system yeah. kind of always screws you over. But what's interesting, when I talked about those early films, you know, The Son of the Sheikh, now that was it was a bit more of a rarity back then to have sequels, and outside of, um, of you know very much genre films, especially horror films, with the occasional detective story like The Thin Man, they would get sequels, right? But a lot of other films kind of wouldn't, and that's that's not just I think because Hollywood was more high minded back then about being original, because honestly, you know the, the executives have always been the same, right? The creative people want to do something new, the money people, you know, just want. I'll quote Keith Richard again. They want to put bit tins of beans on the shelf, you know. Mm. Um, but back then, in the studio system, especially before it all broke up in the fifties, you, you didn't need it to be a sequel, right? There's a there's a line in a, in Barton Fink, the Coen Brothers film about a screenwriter having a nervous breakdown, and they say, um, "I know we love the the script you wrote, and, and we love all your kind of very artistic writing from your play in New York, but what we'd like you to work on is the script for a Wallace Beery wrestling picture." And the Coen brothers are bigger aficionados of the old Hollywood. And what that means by the Wallace Beery wrestling picture is that Wallace Beery was a, a successful actor back in the day. And a lot of his films would, would be about a wrestler. And he's more or less the same character. Yeah. More or less the same storyline. Uh, and the same thing plays out every time. And it's not a sequel. And it's not a remake. But kind of they're all the same. In the same way that like nowadays, um, Liam Neeson seems to be making the same movie every time, even though they change the story, you know, the the, the, the very top. Older man has a vengeful cause yeah. or something like that. Yeah, yeah. he doesn't often doesn't he have to change his wardrobe, you know? Um <laughs> and uh, uh Howard Hawks, who's regarded as one of the greatest directors of all time, revered by John Carpenter, who's one of my favourite directors of all time. He made Rio Bravo about five times. One of the time it was called Rio Lobo, another time it was called something else. And the script would land on John Wayne's doorstep because he was the same guy every time. It would come through his letterbox and, 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 and John Wayne would call Howard Hawks up and says, I got the script. I'm not going to read it because this is just Rio Bravo again, isn't it? So I'm, yeah, let's do it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it was like, sure. 
Um, so they've always been kind of, let's do the same thing again. You know, um, Bogart and Bacall worked really well in To Have and Have Not. Let's, let's have them again. And we'll change the movie to fit the, the stars. Um, but Bergman and, 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 and Bogart worked really well in, uh, in Casablanca. Let's put them in something again. So Hollywood's always done this. So the sequel is almost just like, you know, the perfection of that. But to go back to the um, William Goldman thing about no one knows anything, they're always looking for the slightly surer thing. I know I talk a lot, and I know you talk, about, you, you talk a lot too, about clueless executives ruining things. Mm. But to give them just a little bit of a, just to let them off a little bit, given how hard it is to predict what's going to work and what isn't, and given how expensive films are to make, right? Mm. You can understand them wanting to go for the safest bet of what to do next. Oh, yeah, no, totally. And, and, and that's it's uh, like, th- th- this worked. So it's not just this made money last time. It's this worked last time. Let's do that again. Do you know what I mean? We, because they don't know what works, right? Let the car go past. Hello and welcome to episode 28 of Double Reel, the podcast for the discerning film nerd. It's August 2022 and the political sphere contains the strange spectacle of two idiots fighting to become Prime Minister because anyone with a brain knows this is the worst possible time to take responsibility for the country. We're here to help you get through it all with a generous helping of content for your waiting ears. My name's James Adamson and I'm a film nerd with a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema and a lot of opinions. Joining me on the podcast is my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Thanks for the introduction. I'm not alone for this podcast. I have the pup, so Obi, say hello to everyone. Hello, Obi. We aim to provide an old-school film-goer's experience. This is the podcast equivalent of the monthly film magazines you used to buy in the newsagent, packed with a range of features from the world of film. Each episode is divided into two reels, with an intermission so you can refuel and refresh before you tackle the second half. If you want to comment on the podcast, or with your thoughts on cinema generally, you can reach us on Twitter on at DoubleReelFilm. There's also an Instagram account called DoubleReelPodcast, and a DoubleReelPodcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined. You can also follow us on letterbox.com slash doublereel, where we list all the films we've discussed in the podcast and much more besides. If you like the podcast, we'd also be very grateful if you could leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or whichever platform you use, as it really helps us get the word out to the rest of the world. Here's what's coming up in episode 28. First up, there's a roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds with some film news, how we're doing on our film-related resolutions for 2022, and a look at some of the notable films we watched since the last episode. Then it's time for Classics and Recommended, where we try to get away from an endless diet of TV repeats and instead get round to something from our backlog of great films we haven't seen yet. This month, it's Scarlett Johansson's award-winning indie sci-fi, Under the Skin. Our hidden gem feature draws your attention to a lesser-known or underappreciated film that deserves a wider audience, which this month is 90s crime drama, Two Days in the Valley. Then we turn to the one that got away and look at a tall tale of a potentially great film a top director tried and failed to bring to the big screen. For episode 28, it's attempts by various directors, writers, producers and stars to make the sci-fi action blockbuster Isobar. We close the first reel of this episode with the remake Hate Watch, which this month discusses Steven Soderbergh's updated version of Solaris. After the intermission, the second reel of this episode will feature the big conversation, in which the Adamsons tackle a topic from the film world in more detail. In episode 28, we discuss sequel syndrome, 
Hollywood's obsession with making follow-ups to successful movies regardless of quality. But first, some messages from listeners, aka the podcast magazine letters page. Friend of the pod, Mike, a suggestion for a future big conversation would be how Marvel have lost their mojo since Endgame. Have they... Sorry, yes, 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 yes. Have they killed the golden goose by saturating the market with superhero films and TV shows, etc.? This multiverse thing is just shit. Disney have also fucked up Star Wars, apart from The Mandalorian and Obi-Wan, and the MCU is definitely going down the toilet. Is Disney the problem? That's that's definitely one for us to get our teeth into, maybe. We need about eight hours for that one. (laughs) On the big conversation we've got planned for this episode, Graham says Empire Strikes Back is the best sequel of all time. Corey says the Mm -hmm. best sequels are Mad Max 2, Aliens, Terminator 2, Godfather 2, and John Wick 2. The worst sequel, Speed 2. (laughs) That is shocking. Ryan says sequels should definitely only be made under the right circumstances. As long as you can make it make sense, keep the magic of the first while expanding the story and the characters. I'm all for sequels. On our classic Under the Skin, Tony Friend of the Pod says, I expect the younger James's reaction to this film will be similar to mine, i.e. shite. Always worse when you have high hopes. <laughs> A lot of chat on our Kubrick entry of Clockwork Orange. Tracy says, horrible film, never want to see it again. Alex says this was like Exorcist and Textiles Chainsaw Massacre for me. Built up reputation for years, then a bit dull when I actually saw it. Respect what it did for cinema, though. Stephanie says this shot me when I watched it, but I loved it. I've rewatched it several times. I think you can say there's a very diverse opinion on that film. Uh, on our one that got away ISO bar, Stephen says my teenage self would have loved to have seen this film. On our hidden gem, Two Days in the Valley, Judy says I have very fond memories of this film. Paul and Owen agree. Thanks for all the messages, even the ones we couldn't read out. Now on with the pod. That's why the Transformers franchise is probably, must be top five, at least top ten movie franchises ever. And other than the first one, and I was pretty much in offend, like, not in offend, what am I trying to say? I was indifferent, sorry, to the second one. Other than that, those films are terrible. Yeah. They are just, they're, they're rubbish. The, you know, Mackie Mac comes in, fuck knows what he's got to do with it. It's just, they're just shite. And they they must have made about $6 billion, surely. They must have made a hefty amount of cash because they know that Michael Bay will take a leading man and some robots and some explosions and kids will want to go and see it. Kids don't give a fuck about the dialogue and the, the script and things like that. They just want to see robots fighting. And that works. And fair play to Michael Bay and the producers for making that kind of kind of money. Yeah, and, the because, fact, and I agree. And I mean, because... Obviously, the Transformers. I, I agree with you. The first Transformers film is um, it's fun. It's quite fun. It's probably got a lot of the same things wrong with it as the as the sequels do, but it kind of stays on the right side of the line, right? However, yeah. if you really like Transformers and you really like that stuff, and you don't mind all Michael Bay's worst habits about everything exploding, you'll enjoy the rest of them. Do you yeah. know what I mean? And obviously, if the public is still enjoying them, then they'll make more. I mean, it's the same with Police Academy. Police Academy was a bit of an old favourite in our house in the early 80s, the first one. None of the, you know, and honestly, you, you could draw a graph, right? There's the first one, which is quite good, and then the, the, the second one is a big drop-off, and then it's just a, a downward line in quality all the way to the very, very bottom with, like, Police Academy fucking 7 or whatever it was. Um, and that's very much the old-fashioned kind of sequel model, where it's not a franchise the way Marvel is or the way Bond is, where, they try, where they've continued the story, really. It's just a case of, if this keeps making money, we'll make another one. 
And that's what sequels used to be, wasn't it? If you had seven sequels, it's because the first six films did okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And you can talk, I totally understand like the, the point you're making, and it makes sense for producers to go, do we try something different, or do we go, well, the film wasn't necessarily going to win an Oscar, but we spent $100 million on it, and it made $700 million. So should we just do that again? Yeah. And the, yeah, totally understand why it it does well. But I, I don't particularly care, because I know it's not going to be a great film. The the problem that you start to have is when it's in such dedicated and outspoken um, fan bases. So Star Wars obviously has a massive issue with its sequels and prequels and all these kind of things because the fans are just so clued up on their story. So at that point, it becomes a little it becomes a little harder for the story uh, the studio sorry to just kind of churn out stories that haven't really got any soul to them. Um, but, but it just all, to it, make money. I mean, that's a double-edged sword, though, isn't it? I mean, the filmmakers' hands are tied a little bit if they want to do something better. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and that's sometimes it pays off. Like you said, do we just do the same thing? Uh, yeah, get Michael Bay to make five fucking Transformers films and make yourselves money. But sometimes when you've got uh, franchises like the Avengers franchise and the Star Wars franchises where the the audience that it's intended for are a little bit older and a little bit more, you know... People that watch the Transformers films, I imagine, watched it as a kid and might be into their kind of Transformers lore or um, stuff like that. But it's not as it's not as deep as Marvel that have how many years worth of comic source well, material and pro- Star Wars pro- pro- over sixty now, I guess. And Star Wars is coming up for its fiftieth year of existence. Yeah. So it's a bit different when you, there's expectation from the fans and there's expectation from the producers and that's all you know that's all put at the director and the yeah the i mean it starts to become a straitjacket doesn't it yeah and I mean, it's... An, an interesting example is the last jedi right i mean we i think we're both agreed the last jedi oh. last jedi is shit but i think star wars fans learned entirely the wrong lesson from why that film was shit yeah. it's not shit because somebody tried something different and it's not shit because somebody tried to cast somebody different right it's not shit because they decided to give more uh, women and ethnic minorities parts in the film because there were women and ethnic minorities in the original films. It was shit because they didn't get the story right. Do you know what I mean? The pro- yeah. the problem was, and this is why so much is often riding on these things, is the fans went, well, that serves you right. Don't ever try anything different ever again. It's like, no, 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 right? Well, yeah, and that's exactly what happened with The Rise of Skywalker because it was just the same kind of fan service. And, and then they weren't happy with that. It's... Well, the thing is, and because they forgot the underlying problem was that it was also shit. <laughs> That's, yeah, well, if you want to quickly, I mean, that that's interesting that we're doing a podcast about sequels and the Star Wars sequels have kind of been written off. You know, I I didn't mind Force Awakens, but it was a complete rehash of A New Hope. It's, it's where it, kind of, it started to go wrong. But it? it kind of, the, yeah, the, the making the end of it basically A New Hope is where it kind of set up to fail. But yeah, they, they, they got the director, Ryan Johnson, who I quite liked in Looper and you liked Knives Out. I've still not seen it, but he's obviously a director with ability. And all the choices he made in that film were were wrong, in my opinion. I thought the whole spoiler Admiral Holdo sacrificing herself by putting the ship, uh, putting her ship to go at light speed through the the First Order's fleet to kill them all. It's a brilliant scene, but it was done by the wrong character. You could have saved the millions that you spent to get Laura Dern on board and just given that part to Admiral Akbar, oh. because then you give him the the death that he deserved instead of him being killed off screen. So that's another creative choice from probably the director or maybe yeah. the producers just thought, 
fuck it, let's let's get Laura Dern on board on board for some reason because maybe that'll that'll draw people to come and see the film. But it was it was choices like that, or the choice at the end where John Boyega's character ends up not really doing anything in the final film after doing quite a lot in the first film, yeah. and it would have been a. If he if he'd sacrificed himself to let people escape at the end of the film, that would have been a good story arc for him. And then they were like, "Oh no, we're gonna get his um, partner in crime Rose to to save him, who he's known her for twenty five minutes, and she's suddenly in love with him." So completely spoils the I end mean, of the film. That was the problem: is they failed to to sort of you know these see these are basic storytelling principles. Is that you know if you the audience is going to be frustrated if you if you establish a relationship that doesn't make sense. Or, or end things in a way that doesn't make sense. Audience audience members don't pour over things in the nerdy way that I do. They don't study writing. And the fact is, you know, we 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 do write scripts in our spare time. So obviously we pay more attention to these things than other people do. But you don't have to. The audience can smell bullshit, right? Mm. And it's not... See, with Laura Dern, it's not either or. You, you know, it's really obvious, right? And why we're saying don't give the, don't give the screenwriters a straitjacket. If they want to make the creative choices, you've got to make the creative choices. But here's why it didn't work. You introduce Laura Dern in the second film in the trilogy and kill her off, sorry guys, spoilers, before the end of that film. You've introduced the character and set up some relationships and then she's gone, right? And literally, literally 40 minutes. Yeah. That's genuinely how long it takes. Yeah. Instead of introduce her, you've got a dynamic going between her and Oscar Isaac's character. You've got all sorts of stuff going on. You've got another film's coming after this one. You set her up to continue the story. You give Admiral Akbar the send-off because people have got that's an arc that's a way to finish his story do you know what i mean yeah it's, and, and, and it's interesting right everyone hated last jedi right i think they made a similar similar mistake with rogue one because i thought rogue one was quite overrated and forrest whitaker's character in that now he may have been in some of the animated series or something that he's character might have been in well, clone wars and stuff wars like that games. but as far as the films are concerned he's never been in the films and he's introduced and they're talking about all his history and all that sort of thing and then his character again. Sorry, guys, spoilers. Dies because thirty minutes in. Thirty minutes in. Yeah, and it's like that's where the worst kind of fan service is kind of played up. Because if you've read all the, you know, read all the kind of uh, ancillary materials to it, and done the video game, and watched all the series, you'll enjoy that. It's got to fucking work as a film, and it doesn't work as a film because you've only been introduced to this character for thirty minutes. So good it ends up talking about like he's been running all of his life or whatever, he's making a stand now, and all the things he's talking about would have made an interesting film. Probably what, a more interesting what, film what, than Rogue One. Watch it you show it happening, right? And so, and this and this is the thing, again, I mean I think we've definitely pinpointed the fact that like fan services and all the straitjacket that, that that they have when you make a sequel is part of the problem, is it because there's a I think you mentioned this in Real One where, with with a remake, but I think the similar principle happens with a sequel. If you've got a, f- a hardcore fan base who've got certain expectations, right? If you do something different, they get pissed off. If you do something the same, why bother? And I think that's that's a big kind of trap or trapdoor that you can fall through when you're making a sequel, right? Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of kind of contributing factors. So there's obviously. It, for example, I know we're talking about Star Wars, but there's a lot of factors that are, are wrong with Last Jedi. It was rushed. I don't think they... I think they might have written the script and read it once and gone, yeah, that's fine. But the they should have taken more time. I genuinely think it was a mistake to not have George Lucas on board in some respect. Because... Well, well, yeah, they, because... They're, 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 sorry, they're his characters, and he would have said, Who do, why the fuck are you getting Laura Dern in when you could have Admiral Ackbar doing the same thing? Why Why is Princess Leia now Mary Poppins and can use the Force? You know, 
why why he would have while we don't while we slag off the prequels the prequels are shit because george lucas genuinely rushed those scripts and did everything in post-production but everything that happens in those films i actually like i like the story of it i think anakin turns to the dark side and doing it because he loves padme yeah that works but the way it was done was a bit messy and it was a bit sloppy but i didn't disagree with the story they were trying to tell the sequels that all everything's wrong that yeah. that's the difference. So I think maybe that's it's a it's an unfair argument to make because the prequels are a little bit different because there's less expectation if you know what I mean. Everyone knows that oh Anakin Skywalker he must be Luke Skywalker's dad. Oh is that a young Obi Wan Kenobi? Well we know he's not going to die in any of these films because he you know he's in he's in a new hope. You know what I mean? There's different expectations for different types of films, but the yeah. point still stands that don't just you know don't rush the films have everyone you can consulting that you can to consult with to sort the scripts out and polish the stories and make sure the right people are on board and take your time like they churned out what was it three films in four years yeah that's not enough time that's just not enough time well i mean i I mean i agree with you about george lucas i mean for a slightly different reason but it's basically the same point with the exception of a couple of films he directed american graffiti and the first star wars uh, you know a new hope George Lucas is always far better setting up the story, you know, saying what's going to happen and then putting somebody else in the director's chair and even somebody else writing the screenplay. And some of the best films growing up have him in that role. You know, the good Indiana Jones films, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi. And the problem with the prequels was with him in the director's chair with total, you know, control over everything because he could twiddle his little knobs at the Skywalker ranch. He... The execution was wrong. If he had taken his ideas and given it to Spielberg, Spielberg would have, would have made those prequels work. He'd have done something. Oh. He'd have done the the Star Wars prequel equivalent of X Men First Class, where um, you've it's a prequel. You know which which characters are alive and not alive in in the later films. So you know, but you still come up with surprises because the storyline is all excellent. Um, Spielberg would have would have he'd have taken the initial idea and made it work. Exactly like you say, if they'd gone to George Lucas for the sequel 7, 8, and 9, George Lucas had ideas for 7, 8, and 9 way back in the day, right? And going to him would it would have definitely made it work. Even without him, though, they made some fundamental errors. If they, they planted a seed in Empire Strikes Back, maybe, but definitely Return of the Jedi, that um, Leia might have the Force, right? Why wouldn't she? She's the daughter of Anakin Skywalker. But you don't suddenly introduce that in the last half hour of the second film of the pre of the sequels, do you? Mm. you? You plant that seed in Force Awakens, and maybe do something different with the story, right? If if you know if the in in Rise of Skywalker, um, uh, Daisy Ridley's we're spoiling this all over the shop. We're probably going to get angry messages from Star Wars fans, but um, but they all know anyway um, that Daisy Ridley's actually the daughter of of Emperor Gandalf uh, of Palpatine, yeah. Palpatine, and somehow still alive or whatever it is. Again, plant those seeds. Don't just suddenly go, it's just cheating the audience and they're doing it because they, they got so got things so wrong in Last Jedi, they have to pull it back. But if, if, if I may, mate, you have made a lot of points about what should have been done to make a sequel good, right? And they're all good points and I agree with them. So why don't we, if you don't mind, sort of do a little bit here now on what makes a good sequel and some examples of great sequels because i think then when we then dig into why sequels fail or why other sequels um, are shit i mean it'll give you a give you a start i mean what's um what's an example of a great sequel and why you think it worked uh, so the one that springs to my mind right away is the dark knight uh, 
it's the one that when we were was planning for this and thinking about it, it was the Dark Knight. So the that Dark Knight trilogy is basically made sort of not by accident, but only because Christopher Nolan needed the funding to do Inception and he needed to prove himself. So to prove himself, he accidentally made one of the best films ever. So you, what, you, you don't think the Dark Knight trilogy was planned as a trilogy in the first place? Um, whether it was and whether it wasn't is between Christopher Nolan and Warner Brothers, and it's not really any of my fucking business, but I'm glad those films, you know, have yeah. been made. But yeah, yeah. I get what you're saying, but it's... I, I, makes... I, I just wasn't sure. I sort of I sort of see the, the same as you. I just wondered if you knew for a fact that... No, that I didn't. Did, it wasn't no, I don't. Sorry, anyway. but what makes The Dark Knight great is that between Batman Begins and The Dark Knight Rises, and I know The Dark Knight Rises isn't everyone's favourite film. I still enjoyed it. I thought it was great. There's seven years between those three films. Mm-hmm. So you're giving Christopher Nolte... There was three years between um, Batman Begins and The Dark Knight Rises, and there was four, four years between um, Dark Knight and um, The Dark Knight Rises. Sorry, if I said that wrong. Batman Begins and Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he's three years to make that film and Christopher Nolan was allowed pretty much all the creative control. You don't get the impression that there's loads of studio interference. Christopher and Jonathan Nolan sat down, wrote a script and thought, right, does that work? Does this work? Mm, okay, maybe not. But Warner Brothers just said, right, here's the money, make the film. We trust you. So that's the difference between like the, the bad sequels and the good ones. Having trust and faith in your director and just letting him, her or they do their own thing it's they should be just left to do their own thing left to their own devices if it doesn't work then it doesn't work but i feel like more often than not if you just have faith in the process and what they're going to try and do then that's your first step that's what you need to do And, and interestingly, um, Warner Brothers owns basically all the DC properties, as far as I know. And obviously, Batman is a, a hugely popular um, character going back to 1940, with a, a particularly, you know, with a, I'm sure has a motivated fan base of DC fans and everything else. So Nolan had the same potential challenge as everyone else of people going, "Don't do it differently." Um, you know, that's not what I expect Batman to be, you know, uh, and other other films kind of fallen prey to that. Like, you know, the reason he was rebooting it was because Joel Schumacher had taken Batman in such a wrong direction. So there would have been people with a looking over his shoulder or, or, or wanting to look over his shoulder a bit to to make sure that it fit. And and he managed to tread a very, a very uh, effective line, didn't he, that said, I'm going to do this my way, but I'm going to do this in a way that's um, true to the material. So, it, it, you know, he it, it's interesting that he managed to do that with the pre-existing property that has that fan base and all of those potential straitjackets we talked about and other people have fallen down on it, right? Yeah. that I think that's the, the correct term. The straitjacket is what you're, you're confining the director and the cast and the crew by, you know, whether it's the studio or the audience, then you're, you've put them in a tough situation. I know with the Batman films, obviously Joel Schumacher had completely fucked it. So there wasn't expectation. Batman had kind of been a bit of a running joke for years. I still think the, the Michael Keaton and the Tim Burton and the Val Kilmer Batmans are shit. They are. They're not very good. Um, I, I don't even know there's much expectation on them, but they're, they're not very good films. And then Joel Sch- Schumacher just completely killed the um, 
the franchise. So there wasn't any expectation when Nolan came into it. So he's already lost that pressure. Mm. And then the studio just gave him a budget and said, make Batman Begins. And he did. And it was great. So he made The Dark Knight Rises, which is one of my, uh, sorry, The Dark Knight, which is one of my favourite films. And then wrapped up, wrapped up the trilogy with the third film and I still think it's a great film but yeah I mean as you... whenever there's a trilogy one of the films has to be the weakest of the three doesn't it uh, well, and, just, and, and, and the fact is I, I, I like you I think The Dark Knight Rises isn't as good as the first two but I still think it ends the trilogy very well yeah um, so that that's that's, that's the, the second thing I think making sure there's no pressure on the director because of fan expectation is important because after the Nolan films well, I suppose Dark Knight Rises was a bit of a letdown for some people because the expectation was so high after the Dark Knight. People mm. were interested to see what he would do next after Batman Begins. Smashed out of the park with the Dark Knight and Heath Ledger's performance. It does carry that film to like to a large extent, I would say. But that's what maybe is the, the pitfall yeah, I know, but it's not the yeah, Dark Knight the, Rises. Yeah, the thing is, though, if it's like saying a football team's only good because it's got a certain player in it. If you build a team around the best player and that team wins everything, no, I'm, you've I'm, still been successful, haven't you? I'm so. not slighting the, the, the Dark Knight Rises, but I think the plan after the Dark Knight was that they would make another one with Heath Ledger, maybe. Yeah, maybe. And then that kind of... Th- Kind of scuppered their plans. Yeah. Um, I see. I but, still think Anne Hathaway is a, is a really good antagonist in in that. But obviously, we're playing Catwoman, Catwoman can't be the the main enemy, can she? So I think the yeah. challenge was they had to replace the Joker as they, they had they, they needed a new big bad, didn't they? Which Bane and see, look, I, I think all yeah. This is this is all very minor criticisms. But yeah, I mean, I agree. The Dark Knight is is an excellent but, sequel. What about something like The Godfather, where that's not part of like superhero or sci-fi in, in, a, in, a, in a genre where you'd be like unsurprised to see a sequel because obviously by the time Dark Knight comes out there's already been Batman sequels so the fact there's going to be another one's not a, a surprise well, what about Godfather 2 which we mentioned top of the top of the pod similarly to the Dark Knight trilogy I'm not in any way saying that the that Batman Begins is on the same level as the Godfather because it's not the Godfather is one of the best films of all time and so is Godfather 2 but what you find is is that Godfather 1's excellent and then Godfather 2 is also an absolutely wonderful film but then godfather 3 is rubbish because of the expectation you know what i yeah, mean yeah i mean god godfather 3 right is a film that coppola didn't want to make he'd made it purely because he needed the money and because it was the film he was most associated with that he you know had no um you know uh you know he could always get a godfather film made and he was hoping that that would make enough money for him to do something else so the like like you said that well, I'm probably saying this, actually. If you're going to make a sequel, there needs to be a reason to make it. And there wasn't really much reason to make Godfather 3, unless actually what had happened was Mario Puzo, the writer of the original novel, and uh, and Coppola had actually spent years around the table going, I've got an idea for Godfather 3, let's do it. And what actually happened with Godfather 3 was Coppola is trying to get his other films made, and he's had a bad 80s. And they say, well, what, would you like to know the Godfather film? And he went, oh, all right then. Do you know what I mean? And he, he, he wasn't saying, oh, all right then, to make Godfather 2. Everyone involved with Godfather 2 had a burning desire to do, do that story. Do you know what I mean? There was yeah. some story left from the book. They, you know, having... having This is another thing. This is, an, uh, I think, something that happens more often in sequels now. This is why sequels are now not just seen as like a quick knockoff like they used to be. Is that Coppola proved himself. He had power after Godfather. It won Oscars. He won Oscars, right? Um, the, the film was a massive hit. And the studio... If you know the story of The Godfather, they wanted to get Ryan O'Neill to play um, to play Michael instead of Al Pacino or um, Robert Redford. They said, mate, he's Sicilian. Oh, yeah, but there were some blonde Sicilians, you know. It's like, fuck off. 
let's cast some actual Italian-Americans to play Italian-Americans, right? Um, and for Godfather 2, the studio said, do what you want, um, Francis. Do you know what I mean? He had the he had control to make the film he wanted to make. And yeah, there have, there have been films where that's gone wrong, where you know directors and writers got complete control next time around, and that can go wrong. But in that case, it was like there was a burning desire to make the film. They kept the team together, and there was some story left to tell. Do you know what I mean? And, that, and that's why that one kind of worked, I think. It's because, you know, the... And it's the reason Godfather 2 works and 3 doesn't. Godfather 3 was potentially a very good film, but the re- no one was making it because they had a burning desire to make another Godfather film, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so, potentially, yeah, that's probably why. I think the, the Godfather 2 works so well because they still had excellent source material, and then the third one was kind of half-arsed for a bit of money. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's interesting how... I reckon it, when you... When you analyse those sequels, I think that's just a completely different era. Yeah. Not everyone's got phones and can access all the the knowledge and history behind the Godfather book. Whereas in you know today, everyone's just got an opinion about it and everyone's got different ideas might, about might how films should go. Now. Whereas I imagine your parents watched the Godfather and probably went, "Wow, that was a great film." And then there wasn't much discussion in terms of like what they should have done differently no do you know what i mean yeah i, mean, I think you, we're just you, in a totally different era yeah, of film now yeah yeah i mean you anyway i mean obviously the godfather book was very widely read everyone had read the godfather and they will have seen in it that there was a lot of stuff in the godfather that didn't make it the book that didn't make it into the film so i imagine some people would have gone oh i wonder if they'll do all the bit where lucy mancini goes to las vegas and that, that side story maybe they'll like expand on that in godfather 2 but it was an it was a pretty safe bet that they would do the early years of my of Vito Corleone, um, but um, you're right about the modern era because I think that does change things. Um, but if we look at a, a very commercially minded sequel, is 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 Aliens, and I know that's pre-internet and that's pre that point you made about kind of people on the phones knowing everything about it and everything else, and maybe that's why the recent Alien film struggled because Alien Covenant wasn't very good and Prometheus actually wasn't even meant to be an Aliens sequel uh, Ridley Scott just fancied doing something in that universe but he got his arm twisted to do basically do another Alien film whereas Aliens came out and was was a huge success I mean some people think Aliens is a better sequel than the first film I, I don't think you can compare them because they're doing very different things but why do you think Aliens worked? Because there was like seven years between the two films mm. so the they took their time to flesh out and understand what they were going to do. They didn't just go, Alien, well, Alien 1 did well, let's make one in a year and a half. Let's no, see how we get exactly on with that. the same one. Yeah, the, it's the same for any any industry. Mm-hmm. Why Game of Thrones' final season was trash, because they they rushed the final season. They should have probably made three to flesh everything out. They didn't flesh anything out, and it was panned. It's the same with you know video games. The the video games that make a game every year get panned because they are overworking the people that are making it, and it ends up just being rubbish. Mm-hmm. If you look at whereas if you look at a good example would be um, Red Dead Redemption. First first game was great. It took them eight years to make another one. The second film was also great, and it won all the awards. Mm. If you compare that to Assassin's Creed, where they make where they used to make a game every year. By the time they were making the fourth game in that series, it was getting panned because yeah. it was just taking too much. It was just it was asking too much of the people making it. 
So if you don't flesh out and take the time to do things correctly, you're off to a bad start. So that mm. if we were to make a, a manual on how to do things, it's have faith in the people making the film. Yeah. Give them the time and resources to also make that film. If you can remove any fan expectation, it's always hard to do that because it, if they see that someone exciting's directing it or starring in it, then they go, oh, I bet that's going to be good because that person's going to be in it. And wow, that that's a really good decision to hire that actor or that director. But if there's not a lot of expectation, then the film is more than likely to do well. It's why I thought Ragnarok is so good because... The f- the sequel Dark the Dark World was just shit, and everyone thought, oh, I don't really care about these store films. And then Taika Waititi took it in a new direction, and Chris Hemsworth, you know, had a, a, a basically a new character to play with because yeah. he'd just been given that kind of creative freedom. Um, so it's yeah. hard because th- I think it's hard now, and I think we'll find this with sequels that there's going to be some hits and there's going to be a lot of misses because. They've already established universes and characters and franchises, so to to make sure that things are polished or done well is going to be hard because the fan expectation is never something that you can manage. You can manage the time it takes to um to make a film, and you can manage having faith and the right resources you put into the film, but you can never manage fan expectation. However, yeah. if you do those first two steps correctly, the fan expectation should be met because the directors had the, yeah. the maximum amount of time to do what they need to do and um, they've been given the faith and resources to do it. So that's that's what would make a good sequel. And I think if you were to look at all the great sequels um, in yeah. history, probably ignoring The Godfather because they churned those films out pretty rapidly because that, Francis that, that Ford was, that was a freak. That was t- um, the thing is, that was, well, not only is a freak, that's not even the only film we made in 1974. If you believe Conversations, that. Yeah, the other yeah, one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the thing is, it came out two years later, but I think it was very clearly more story to tell and he had the power to do it right and he, so he did it and he, you know, strike while the iron's hot. But, I mean, I've got a list of some of my favourite sequels here and I think a lot of them do actually fit exactly what you've described. You've said Aliens because they didn't come and do that until they had another idea. And they only they only they went with the director who had a clear idea what he wanted to do, and they didn't just make the same film uh, as the first one. Now I know that's a bit easier because there wasn't quite the same expectation back then. But I mean, Terminator Two fits that profile because they waited seven years to do another one, and obviously made sure they had more story to do. Toy Story Two, they gave it like four years. I think that's enough time to come up with another good story. Something like Mad Max Fury Road, it was like 30 years, you know, there was, hmm. there was plenty of time for the dust to settle. And even when you look at some of the great sequels that come out quite soon after the first one, if you take um, From Russia With Love, that works, I think, because there's loads of Bond books. And if the first Bond book goes well, make another one. Do you know what I mean? The story's yeah. there for you. Um, and uh, Paddington 2, I think, works just because even though that, that comes up relatively soon after the first one, they just went, no, no, we've, we've, got, the, we've got this, we've got you know, we know how to do this. They stuck to the same principles without just making it a retread of the first one. Do you know what I mean? It's interesting, if we take um, The Raid 2, I mean, I think that's a brilliant sequel to the first film, and that came out relatively soon after the um, the, the, the first one. Um, do you, I mean, do you think that's as good as the original? I think it's an excellent sequel. I will always have a soft spot for The Raid, and I think it works better than the sequel because it's not as long and it's quite... It's quite a short film. It's concise. It's action-packed the whole way through, whereas The Raid's kind of got more tension built through it. Two kind of different films from the same director, but 
they I mean, work it, well. It, it, is um, three, it is three years between films, to be fair. So it's not like they rushed it out yeah, a year later. The meticulousness of, is, is it Gareth Evans? I always get this mixed up because there's two Welsh directors called Gareth and one did Godzilla and it was crap and one did The Raid and it was good. Gareth Evans, Gareth yeah. Evans, yeah. Gareth yeah. Evans, yeah. Um, he is a very meticulous director, and you'll hear the the cast saying that, you know, the kitchen scene in Raid Two. They took them a month to film it because they were just building up that trusting each other to do the moves properly and make sure that it looked, you know, correct. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I'm not saying you need to take all that time, but if you're going to make the films relatively quickly after one after the other, then you need to be meticulous about it. So, obviously, the Lord of the Rings films were filmed over eighteen months, but that's still six months of shooting per film if you want to kind of quantify it like that yeah, yeah. so that's that's intensive that's six months is longer than most shoots that was special wasn't it because he, he so, worked to a plan he was almost but, making two films at the same time so but it? yeah so the lord of the rings that must be about probably about 180 days of filming per film mm-hmm. and that's not including the time afterwards to edit and the time before that they spent ages the planning but they had a great story to begin with they had one of the most famous books of all time so you know it, that that is a level of detail and meticulousness that you need to make great films and their their sequels. Tarantino's longest shoot, I think, is still Django Unchained, and that was a hundred and ten odd days. Yeah. So if Tarantino, who is one of the most OCD directors and you know picky people in the film industry, and he's taking a hundred and ten days to make the films that he makes, that he can be up he, to he, three yeah, hours he, long. He doesn't roll the camera till he's happy with the then, shot, does he? Okay, you can, okay, spend time, like, you can make money, uh, you, sorry, you can spend money making these films, you know, in quick succession, but you still need to give the director and the people making it that time. Yeah. Otherwise, you are going to suffer. So if you don't give the director that time of six months of filming, that's just the time that, I think it was just, I think it was 18 months of shooting, I think, that those films were. That, that's that's well, a yeah, lot of time. I, I mean, Lord, Lord of the Rings was kind of exceptional in a lot of ways because he was actually filming two and three back to back. There'd be times where he needed to be in two places at once. So he's looking at the the, 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 the set over here and he's on the phone or like on some sort of like well, whatever the 2002 version Zoom of Skype call, is yeah. Yeah, um, for, for the other one. Do you think the Lord of the Rings, uh, Two Towers, and Return of the King count as sequels in the strictest sense? I might be splitting hairs here, but given that there is a distinct the book, they're making a, a film of a trilogy. They purposely only make the first film in the trilogy the, the first time out. Fellowship of the Ring. It, when it's, I know there must have been an element of if Fellowship of the Ring isn't successful, we're not going to do the second and third film. But there was always a second and a third film in Peter Jackson's mind. Is that the same as when they make a sequel after a successful film in normal circumstances? Um, I suppose you. Yeah, it's it's actually quite hard to answer that when you when you break it down. Um, because that the Lord of the Rings films in themselves are exceptional because they are just a feat, and I don't think we'll ever see anything made that way and that successfully ever yeah. again. Um. Well, it's a combination of someone actually decided to give a director who really understood the material, all the resources they needed to make the film. And that director had not only a clear idea of the film they wanted to make, but the ability to manage all the logistics required to do it. Um, It's a combination of things that's like lightning in a bottle, isn't it? If you you have all of those things, then it's going to be great, you know? Yeah. (sighs) So I, I had a look at like, 
some there's a few sequels that some people are going to even argue are better than the original. I don't always agree, but Terminator Two, a lot of people prefer to the first Terminator. Paddington Two, I think, is better than the first movie. The first one was very good. All the Mission Impossible's get films get better from four onwards. Spider Man Two is an improvement on Spider Man One of the Raimi series. Mad Max Two is an improvement. Star Trek Two is an improvement. Leone Spaghetti Westerns get better as they go on. Uh, Desperado's better than El Mariachi. The second X-Men film that Brian Singer did is better than the first one. And Evil Dead 2 is better than Evil Dead 1, just sort of rattling those out. And I think there's a, for me, a lot of what you say is 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 the reason why those sequels work. Because, you know, they only did it because they had a genuine, like, another story to do. And they kind of kept it, you know, kept it like that. They didn't just churn out. Um you know, it's things like Terminator 2 and stuff that actually took their time. Star Trek 2 is probably better than Star Trek 1 because Star Trek 1 was crap. So, of course, the second one's better, but they got it right second time. Things like the Leone Spaghetti Westerns, Desperado and Evil Dead and, and things like that, and Mad Max 2, is that they actually had the money to make the film they wanted to make the first time. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, some, so sometimes the fact that people actually genuinely invest in the sequel is why you get a better film because, you know, Terminator 1... I love it. I I'll probably just slightly prefer it to Terminator Two, but I think the reason people like Terminator Two better was is look at that look at that massive truck versus bike chase where the where the truck jumps off the bridge onto the LA River. Do you know what I mean? That's amazing, spectacular stuff uh, that they didn't have the money to do the first time, but they still had a good story. So I think that's why those films work well. And there's there's examples of films that sequels that they're not as good as the first film, but they're still good and people were still happy with them. French Connection 2, Back to the Future 2, Rocky 2, Lethal Weapon 2. Lethal Weapon 2 works quite well, I think, because they kind of established a formula where they just said, let's make it a little bit lighter than the first film, because what people really enjoyed was the relationship between Mel Gibson and Danny Glover. Do you know what I mean? Uh, 22 Jump Street, I thought was a decent sequel to 21. Uh, you know, Dawn of the Dead, I think that's another example, I think, of the um, uh, Night of the Living Dead is an all-time classic zombie film. Dawn of the Dead is... You know, ten years later, he's got a bit more resources, and it's not like he's rushed out a, a quick retread. He actually expands the story and so on. Um, but have you got some examples of sequels where I'm, I'm I'm trying to look for like the the typical scenario where they've made a sequel just because the first film was successful and they didn't have as many good ideas or imagination as the first one, and you can see the law of diminishing returns start to kick in. Highlander two, number one. Oh. Highlander 2. All right, this is a spectacular failure. Highlander 2 is fucking unbelievable. Now, they didn't crank that film out immediately after the first one. It was a bit of a five-year gap, but it's a terrible, terrible, terrible sequel. Yeah, that doesn't matter. That, that one doesn't matter about the whole time between films because I don't think anyone expected a Highlander 2. And then someone went, ah, fuck it, why don't we just make one? And they must have made it in about an hour because... Ah. All sorts of shit happened to Highlander 2. The fact is, there's a number of things there. First of all, when the tagline of a film is there can only be one, you're tempting fate making a sequel, all right? Hmm. First first thing. Second thing, um, the they came up with a bunch of wild, mad ideas that it's like, oh, actually, they're aliens. They tried to retrofit a whole load of stuff into the second film. That There's nothing in the first film to suggest it. So I don't think they had any genuinely good good ideas for the second film. It also falls into some of the traps where they they kind of made it because while the first film wasn't a big hit at the box office, it, I love Highlander, it's a great film, but it's fucking nonsense, right? But it was a big hit on video and they said, oh, well, you know what, it's been a hit. Let's make another one. And this time with, with money and promotion, because people have found the film now, they'll all come and watch the sequel. Um, that's not as good a reason to do um, to do a sequel as... There's more of there's more good story to tell, 
The other problem was is that they it was independently financed by some dodgy people and it lost budget halfway through and the whole thing went tits up. There's a there's a case study in why that film is completely fucked. Um, there's there's some examples that I would say of like this is a classic example of the law of diminishing returns kicks in because they they they, they just isn't the same originality as the first film Jaws two. It's successful. It's all right. It's not as bad as Jaws three and four, but it's just. You watch Jaws 2 side by side with Jaws 1 and it's obvious it's just not as good as the original film in any different way. The director's not as good, the script's not as good. It's just the same thing happening again. Die Hard 2, they even take the piss out of themselves in the script of Die Hard 2 where, where Bruce Willis goes, why does this always happen to me at Christmas? Do you know what I mean? It's like, well, don't make the fucking film then, you know? And yeah. I went to see a Die Hard 2 at the cinema and I enjoyed it, but it's not a patch on Die Hard 1. Halloween 2, likewise. Karate Kid Part 2, likewise. Home Alone 2. The Mummy Returns. The Mummy Returns is actually all right. It's quite good, but it's not as good as the first film. Jurassic Park 2. Again, they've just not... Um, they've made a they've made a sequel basically because a sequel is inevitable. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. And even though they're all right... So, some of the films... Are, well, Halloween 2 is pretty shit, but some of those films are all right, but it's... You can just see if you if you look at it side by side with the first film, it's like every single thing is like less original and less good than the first time, and they've only made the film because it made so much money the first time. But in terms of genuinely, genuinely shit sequels, is Highlander two the worst one you can think of? Oh, did they not make a sequel to A Monkey's Tale? I don't know because that's that'll be mine. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't know if they did. There are, right, sorry, yeah. Um, I mean, there are some. I mean, Highlander 2 is one of the worst sequels of all time. There are other spectacularly bad sequels that are just great examples of what the hell were you thinking. Speed 2, which one of the one of the listeners wrote in about. Have you seen Speed 2? No, but I know it's on a boat and there's no Keanu Reeves, so what's the fucking point? I mean, the, the whole thing is, right, it, the film's called Speed, yeah? Things happen at speed, yeah? The, the way to do a piss take of speed is to imagine everything that happens in speed happening at really slow speed, like they did in Father Ted. <laughs> Why on earth would you seriously expect fans of the first film to come and watch? And Surely enjoy? it's a train. Surely the next one's a train. That would yeah. have been my. Um... And, and maybe they did that because there's already been uh, 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 under siege two. There's been something. You know, there's been something on a train. But again, the thing is, there's been speed like that sort of plotline on a ship is basically under siege, right? But the whole point of speed is that this vehicle that you're travelling on is going to get out of control. It's a fucking cruise ship. It's not even a fast boat. Do you know what I mean? It's one of the slowest boats. And, you know, Keanu Reeves didn't do it because he was lucky enough, in, in you know, not just lucky. I like Keanu Reeves. And although he's not the best actress sorry, best actor around. He did it. He, he was having a good career. He didn't need to do the sequel. He could see it was crap, so he didn't do it. Terrible, terrible, terrible idea. Um, you know the film Staying Alive, uh, Saturday Night Fever? Yeah. They made a sequel to that. Why? Well, exactly. It was called Staying Alive, so there's not even any imagination because Staying Alive is one of the successful songs off the soundtrack. And it's about the same character that John Travolta played in Saturday Night Fever six years later. He's not disco dancing anymore because disco's over. He's um, he's trying to make it as a dancer on Broadway. And uh, it's all about a, a completely different kind of dancing. It's just like at no point, you, you just you listen to the storyline of the film and go, that's not going to be very good. Don't make it. And they went ahead and made it anyway. Um, yeah, so I, I think... I think to qualify for it to be a terrible sequel is that the original film had to have been good. 
So I've seen a lot of suggestions for Mortal Kombat 2. No, the first one. As if Mortal, Mortal, as if Mortal Kombat 1 was any good. Um, uh, again, but, I've seen suggestions. I'm, I'm looking at sequels here trying to get some inspiration. So they put Ghost Rider 2 as if Ghost Rider 1 was any good. Yeah, I mean, Ghost Rider 1 was terrible. I mean, you didn't like Blues Brothers, but Blues Brothers has uh, quite a big sort of fan base. A lot of people like it. And 20 years later, they tried to make a sequel to that. And that's a terrible idea because one of the main actors isn't even alive anymore. Um, they did a sequel to Basic Instinct. It's like there's one one of the key one of the key things about making a sequel is if you only just got away with it the first time, you're not going to get away with it the second time. Do you know what I mean? Um, and I think that applies to Blues Brothers. Um, did you like Jim Carrey's film The Mask? No, but I know the son of The Mask is terrible. Yeah, I mean I like The Mask, but the thing is, if you look back on Jim Carrey's comedies of the early nineties, right? Jim Carrey quite quickly stopped trying to do that. After maybe Liar Liar, even Jim Carrey went, I think this is wearing thin a little bit. So let's uh, let's not do that. Um, and But they just said, no, 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 the mask was successful, let's do it again. And you don't have the same like main actor playing it. It's it's all been played out. Try it again. It's gonna it's gonna fail, it's gonna flop. But um some of these sequels are operatically bad because just they make all all the wrong decisions. I mean, the but most importantly, I mean, Highlander Two is probably a really good example. There was no reason for a sequel, and you're just getting into trouble to just try and do it the second time. I mean, I thought Transformers Two was a massive come down on the first one, when apparently that was like the writers' strike. But I'm not sure Transformers films even have scripts. I'm not sure if that's an excuse. Um, but it's just a case of where, where sequels have gone terribly. I mean, here's an example, actually. Mission Impossible 2. Yeah. You see, Mission Impossible, when you look at it on the face of it, it, it makes sense for them to make a sequel to that film because it's about like a, a group of, of, of super spies. Um, there have been very, very good sequels to Mission Impossible, and we're probably lucky that we have them because Mission Impossible 2 was, was shit. Um, and it, it could have put them off doing it. I think the film was reasonably financially successful. I think Tom Cruise was just motivated enough to keep trying until he got it right. But Mission Impossible 2 is an example of, hey, there's no reason why you can't do a sequel to this. This is an action film. It's obviously a potential franchise. It's my favourite action franchise now. Um, so of course you could do a sequel to that. You've got Tom Cruise back, great. You do another storyline. It's the kind of film where you don't need all the actors back from the first film. I mean, if you keep some of the original kind of team for the, um, you know, to be in Tom Cruise, Ethan Hunt's team, that's cool. But you can have a new setting, a new case, a new enemy, a new a new villain. You know, you can you can take it in a different direction and still have your. So it, you you can avoid the pitfall of it not just being the same thing again. Do you know what I mean? And that one's quite bad. And I think um, that's probably a, a slightly different example to some of these other ones. In that Mission Impossible Two is crap. I think because they. Um, I don't know, they just got the tone wrong. They made some wrong decisions about the villain and the story and stuff. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think if we're going to we're gonna pick one, I think it's going to have to be based on how good the original film was. And a lot of the ones I'm seeing are like Police Academy 4 or <laughs> Scary Movie 4 as if the ones before were any good. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think the one that we'd have to pick would have to be Jaws 3D or Jaws The Revenge. Because Jaws, I mean, Jaws 2 is pretty shit. But Jaws 1 is so good. Jaws, I can't believe I'm calling it Jaws 1. Jaws yeah. is so good. And those films are excellent. And they're, you know, 
sorry, what am I talking about? That film is excellent and I love it. And then the sequels that followed it are absolutely shite. So I think if we're going to... Yeah, Jaws, Jaws, Jaws 2 gets a bit of an easy ride because the sequels after that are so much worse. But Jaws, I don't think Jaws 2 is very good at all. I think we'd have to... I think because of how good the first film was, I think the worst sequel sequels of all time, you can put them collectively because they're all rubbish, um, would have to be the Jaws sequels. Yeah, you know, Jaws, especially Jaws the Revenge. I mean, that's just spectacularly bad. I mean, because it, it requires the shark to be able to travel... Um, from the east coast of America uh, as quickly as, a, as an airliner as a fucking can fly to the Bahamas yeah. and somehow knows who all of um, Chief Brody's family are and what's going on with them and, 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 and be interested in pursuing them and taking some sort of personal revenge on them. I mean, th- th- I remember talking to someone about Jaws Revenge and I might have bored people with this story before on this podcast. I do apologise if I have. That I was telling people about what a bad sequel Jaws the Revenge was and I don't think they'd seen it. That's Jaws 4. And I remember saying, and you know, and, and actually, the the whole point of it is, is the shark seems to have some sort of personal grudge against the other, against the, the the people from the previous films, which means it has to have a known the other sharks that got killed. Known it's da, yeah, <laughs> and known who the Brody family are and want to go after them. And they joked, and went, "Ha ha, this time it's personal," because they didn't realise that was the actual tagline of Jaws: The Revenge. They just <sighs> heard this line, "This time it's personal," is one of those kind of classic cheesy taglines. That was the actual tagline for Jaws: The Revenge. This time it's personal. And at no mm. point did someone go, no, that's a fucking terrible idea. Yeah, I think if we're picking uh, based on how good the original... Because Highlander 1 is a bit is a bit mm. rubbish in places and Highlander 2 is awful. But I think it's got to be those Jaws films. It's got to be. And I mean, another good example... Um, Although it's based on an original that's obviously not as good as Jaws, but it's an absolutely terrible sequel, and it's a perfect example of get of all the things you said a sequel shouldn't do if it wants to avoid being shit. This film, uh, I think, did them. Yeah. Did, basically did them, and that's the Jewel of the Nile, which was the sequel to Romancing the Stone. Right now, Romancing the Stone is quite before your time, and I think it's a very kind of eighties film. Have you seen it? I'm not sure how well it stands no. out to a generation younger. It's an absolutely cracking, cracking film, right? It, sh- it, it shows Michael Douglas off at, at his best and Kathleen Turner at their best. Danny DeVito is fucking incredible in it. He's amazing, right? And the, the storyline is is that uh, uh, it's, it's, it's a ridiculous story, but you're not meant to take it seriously because they're not taking it wholly seriously. So Kathleen <laughs> Turner plays a sort of dowdy... Um, romantic novelist who's never really been anywhere, never really does anything. And she kind of daydreams about her life being a bit more adventurous like her stories and meeting a guy who's a bit more kind of dashing like the guy she writes about in her stories. And she's just sort of stuck in New York, sort of feeding her cat. Do you know what I mean? And I'd not seen Kathleen Turner or anything else because in 1984, all of the films that she'd made before that were completely inappropriate for an 11-year-old to watch, right? So I'd never seen her as like vampish, incredibly attractive um Kathleen Turner, who could turn any man's head, right? So I totally believed her as the dowdy kind of um, uh, sort of romantic novelist. And then when she actually turns out to be quite feisty and sort of you know, glamorous and attractive later on in the film, I'm like, oh, wow, what a transformation. And everyone else who knew who Kathleen Turner was wouldn't have been as impressed by that, right? But her sister gets caught up in a plot down in South America and she has to go down and, uh, and rescue her. And her life turns into one of her books. And it's the sort of thing that, that happens now. It's like Galaxy Quest, for example, is such a cracking film because the, the, the amusing enjoyment of 
uh, life turning out to be like the fiction you're normally getting involved in is a really fun idea. And this is what happens and it all gets exciting and they, it's, it's brilliantly done. It's Robert Zemeckis did Back to the Future. It's probably the reason he got the Back to the Future film. And it's a cracking, cracking adventure film, right? It was a massive hit. It was a huge hit. Robert Zemeckis went, brilliant. I'm glad I had a big hit with that film. That's going to give me the impetus I need to make Back to the Future. So he goes and makes Back to the Future the next year, which is an all-time classic and makes his career, okay? Right. They're desperate to make a sequel. He's having nothing to do with a sequel. And they pay Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner and Danny DeVito obscene amounts of money to be in the sequel. And they say, okay, that money's good. I'll do it. They didn't have a script and they started shooting it. But at one point, Kathleen Turner recounts sitting down on the floor with Michael Douglas working through the script and sifting through it to see if there were any workable scenes they could do together because the script was an absolute disaster. The film came out less than a year after the first film. There's no way they had enough time to develop a story properly or anything like that. And all they did was pay everybody a lot of money and there's no decent directors, no script. The whole thing is a massive like retread of the first film. They try and make it different by setting it in a different location, but it's just the same beats of the first film. And it's it's a classic textbook example of taking a first film and you could maybe do a sequel to Romancing the Stone. But it's a little bit of a stretch because it's one of those films where at the end of it, everybody's arc has ended quite satisfyingly. Do you know what I mean? If that's a word. It's like Michael Douglas's character ends up in a certain place and Kathleen Turner ends up in a certain place and they've wrapped it up really well. So it's a little bit risky to make a sequel to it, but you could do it. You could do it if if, if you find the right storyline. But honestly, they they started, they greenlit the second film and started production like weeks after the first film did well at the box office and it's just a perfect example of they're just desperately grabbing for the same money do you know what I mean <sighs> that's disappointing isn't it that that I've not seen it but I would understand why you'd pick that as the worst sequel it's, ever it's, it's, with it, the kind of conditions we've gone with I, I mean I don't think it's as bad a film objectively as things like Highlander 2 and and, and Jaws the Revenge but I think it's it's an example of, of of why Hollywood falls into these traps because everything about it is the wrong approach. That's not why you should make a film. Do you know what I mean? And sometimes only making a film for the money works out for you. Do you know what I mean? But so there's a couple of things I was interested in. I'd be interested in your thoughts on them. When Toy Story 2, I mean, does that count as a sequel for you? Yeah, it's a sequel to Toy Story. So, so, so the trilogy, it, that's one that like became a trilogy. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of... Well, it's a quadrilogy now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah I, I try not to think about the fourth one because it's like... A, I mean, that's almost a little subset of its own. It's like when you've made the perfect kind of set of three films, even if the fourth one is good, it's a it's a disappointment. They should have left it alone. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, we've, we've managed to avoid superhero films mostly in this discussion. Um, but I think when you look at franchises, right, when you see things like I know Fast and Furious, you're not you're not you're not the biggest fan of, but it becomes something that has the momentum to keep making more films. Obviously, the Bond films are a franchise, and there's clearly a a, um, a monetary aspect to continuing to make Bond films. But you know, Marvel and DC and all these franchises now, and Mission Impossible, they make sequels because they, um, you know, because they're a franchise now, and people want another another installment of the trilogy. Is that the same as like? Because after a while, it's set up, we're going to make a bunch of these films. Do you know what I mean? Do, do the normal rules of sequels apply to those films? Um, I don't know. That's, that's interesting. Um, and throw, I think, throw in Star Wars as well, because obviously we, we, we dug into Star Wars a fair bit. I mean, do the normal rules of sequel apply to these things? They're almost like, um, after a while, 
they're almost like a... And I know this is probably bad for cinema generally, but they're almost like serialized entertainment. They're like a... You know, when something has got nine episodes, that's almost got the same rules as a TV show rather than a film. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think, I think it depends on who and why they're doing it. And obviously, you know, for the kind of Transformers films, it is almost serialized. It's like they're just they're just like a TV show now. Yeah. Where they just carbon copy it, and you know. That's basically what they're doing just to make money. I hadn't really thought of that. What do you think about it? Well, I remember having a discussion with someone about why the Star Wars um, sequels... I mean, the prequels are a different thing. I agree with you. The prequels are a failure of execution. Um, there, was a, there was a good idea for a film in there, and it just didn't, just didn't get made, right? Whereas with the, um, the, the Star Wars films, the 7, 8, and 9, and so on, the... I remember having this discussion with someone that said, "When when you're getting down to like this many episodes in a, in a film, and there's you know the actual films have got the word episode in the title, do you know what I mean? And they're a continuation of the last film, and there's going to be another film after this one. Do you know what I mean? You know, like you kind of knew, didn't you? When they did Star Wars: The Force Awakens, and then the Last Jedi came out, I'm, I was pretty sure it had probably been publicly said, but it was implicitly understood that there would be another film after it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It was it was another it was a new Star Wars trilogy." And I said, you need a showrunner. It's the same thing as for a TV show. That you know, What works in these things, it's partly the execution and the direction and the quality and everything else. But you need a showrunner. You need someone who's got control of where this story is going. And it's like, I don't think that's as important with Fast and Furious because they've got a nice simple formula, really. I mean, I think the reason the last one, a lot of people are pissed off for the last one is because they just got so silly they put a car in space. And it's like... Is it possible for a Fast and Furious film to be too silly? Well, they spent a lot of the last film proving that the answer to that question is yes, right? Um, but things like, and, and Bond films are slightly different because those can be standalone, but with Marvel and DC and Star Wars and, and Mission, Mission Impossible to an extent, where it works is they've actually said, and The Dark Knight's another good example, is that where someone's actually got a storyline that they're following and, and it actually makes sense to go from here to here to here, you've got more chance of it working. And one of the big reasons the DC films have failed, I mean, I know there's some problems with the way they were directed and the, the performances and everything else, but part of the problem was the stories were so broken-backed because no one actually worked out how they were going to line up the stories, what we're going to do in this film and then that film and then that film. Because if you don't have that, you have Carrie Fisher suddenly become Mary, becoming Mary Poppins in Last Jedi and then being a Jedi teacher in Rise of Skywalker. And... That you could make that work if they'd actually set it up in 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 the that trilogy from the beginning. Hey, you know what happened? Luke Skywalker kind of you know has become a hermit and everything, but it turns out you know Leia's got a bit of the Force and has been tentatively working her way up. Do you know what I mean? Trying to help. Do you know what I mean? You could, and then if she suddenly has Force powers, it wouldn't have seemed so ridiculous. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And the failure is that there's no one there to say, look, if we know we're going to be making multiple films. You don't have to make multiple films, in my opinion. A lot of my favourite films, um, you know, don't have sequels or don't need sequels, and I'm not as interested in the sequels as I am in the first film, like John Carpenter's Halloween. Um, but if you are going to follow it up, if you don't know where your story's going, you are fucked from the beginning. That's my view on it, anyway. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. I think, I think. For us, obviously, the, the the intentions to make a good film have to be there, regardless of. 
mm-hmm. box office success, but you're never going to get that in Hollywood, of course. Yeah. Um, but it's it's not even a case of like sequels now. We've got so much expectation on Christopher Nolan, and I've got so much expectation on Christopher Nolan that I've been disappointed with um, his last two films. Mm-hmm. And I've got so much expectation for his next one, Oppenheimer, that I'm worried that I'm going to set myself up. Yeah, like, I, I, know exa- I know exactly what so, you mean. And it's the same for people like Tarantino. So it's about how these people making films kind of navigate that expectation. Mm-hmm. It obviously gets harder when you've got established stories, but yeah, I agree, I agree with you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. I, I wanted to sort of uh, discuss quickly um, uh, some examples of sequels that I, I thought were very good, and they, they, they sort of occupy their own little category, I thought, which is um, it starts with A Colour of Money, in 1986 uh, that Scorsese did um, but it's it's really intensified with uh, Mad Max Fury Road yeah and uh, just recently Top Gun Maverick because these are sequels that come out 25 or 30 years after the after the previous film The Color of Money was like a bit of a surprise hit because the fact is that Scorsese decided to go off and kind of do his own thing a bit in the 80s anyway I mean, that's how he, I think, dealt with that fan expectation that you're talking about. So in the 80s, he went off and did a range of things. He did one more kind of obvious De Niro film uh, in King of Comedy, which wasn't very well received, despite being actually his best film, um, in my humble opinion. I know that that's a minority minority view. But, and then he, then he did After Hours, which was a very interesting little film. And he did various other bits and pieces. And when he came to do Color of Money, he'd kind of avoided the fan expectation bit by he was just doing something completely different from what people associated him with but there was an element then that says wow you're doing a sequel to the hustler about a pool shark 25 years later why are you doing that martin and he pulled it off right he pulled it off because he found a way into the story which is you know all the regrets and the kind of way in which the first hustle film ends which doesn't it doesn't end i don't want to spoil it but it doesn't end entirely well for the main character and now you've got paul newman playing the same character 25 years later, where is his life now? What are his regrets? What what unfinished businesses he have? Do you know what I mean? It's all, and then he, he introduces like the idea of a young pool hustler. And Fast Eddie goes, well, this is my chance to get back into the big time, but it's also my opportunity to kind of help someone who reminds me of me to not make the same mistakes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. What would I, what would my life have been like if I've had if I'd had someone there to guide me at, at, at the time? And interesting, when we talked about hustle. The, the new Adam Sandler film, there was almost an element of that in that film. That's not a sequel to anything, but it's that mentor-mentee and the fact that the mentor's own past is, 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 is it haunts him a little bit. It's, 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 it works as a story. And because Scorsese is a different director to the guy who did the first film and he, he, just, he just made it work. But Mad Max Fury Road and Top Gun Maverick are, are even better examples of this because it's the original director coming back or the original kind of in, in, the, in the case of Mad Max Fury Road, it's the original director coming back. And in Top Gun Maverick, it's Tom Cruise, who is clearly the, the creative force behind what the film's going to be like, even though he's not a director. And there's an element of the original films were huge and big, and what's this new one going to be like? And Mad Max Fury Road was... before. I mean, Mad Max, the Mad Max films were before your time, but what was your expectation of Mad Max Fury Road before it came out, mate? Um, not much, to be fair, because I actually watched Mad Max Fury Road then went and watched the originals. Mm. So I didn't really have any expectation. I had be did we go see it together for the first time or had you already seen it when I went to see it with you? I think that was the first time I went to see it was with you. So 
I didn't have many expectations. I just liked the cast and it looked fucking cool. And that's all the expectations that I had for it. So for me, I think expectation depends on the, how we deal with it, not yeah. necessarily how the, yeah, the yeah, director yeah. has to deal with it. So I I make a point of not watching trailers now. Yeah, I see same. the release date and I see the trailer and I go I go to watch it. I'll watch 10 seconds then I'll go, actually, no, I'm going to yeah. leave it. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Um, so, yeah, my, I mean, yeah, my expect sorry, my expectation was that okay, looks cool, let's go see it. So I, I don't know about you. Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously, I think it was a bit more complicated for me because I remember the first films. Yeah. Um, and Mad Max Two, especially, is is a classic action film, and George Miller had just gone off and not done really anything like those films since he went off in other directions you remember we, one of our one that got away features in a previous episode was his justice league film which never happened and yeah. that would have it would be interesting to see how people would have viewed mad max fury road if he'd done justice league in that intervening time because at least people would have gone oh george miller he's you know he's a guy from the 80s but actually he's just he's done a a, a, a blockbuster in modern conditions uh wow but with Mad Max Fury Road, there was this—I think everyone had a big element of curiosity about this. Really, why are we doing a sequel to this thirty years later? And it's going to be mostly practical effects. And you know, that some of the hype started to come in that said, you know, Robert Rodriguez was one of the audience kind of um, invited to watch a preview screening of the film, and apparently stood up in the middle of the audience, you know, during the middle of the film, turned to George Miller and shouted, "How the hell did you do that?" It was all this like, "Oh, this is going to be something different. This is going to be something you've never seen before." And I was like. I was sceptical because you've heard all that hype before, right? Do you know what I mean? It's, are they always hype films like this? Do you know what I mean? George Miller's can a director who's not really picked up those weapons, those tools for 30 years. He's been off doing happy feet. He's had an interesting career. I like George Miller, but really, really? And then out comes Mad Max Fury Road and it was like, wow. And now I can see why the film was always going to work. There's a, there's a famous shot at the end of Mad Max 2 where you see Mel Gibson as Mad Max framed next to his car with a really interesting background of the desert. And I think it's a lightning storm or something, and it's a really impressive visual. But because of the the facilities available at the time, the rest of the Mad Max 2, as good as Mad Max 2 is, right, there's nothing like that in it. But that shot showed the ambition that George Miller's got to go, I'm not, I don't just want to do the action. I want to create this entire world. I want it to be so spectacular looking and so adrenaline rushing that you've never seen anything like it before. And Mad Max Fury Road was the fulfillment of that ambition. Do you know what I mean? And he'd obviously been brewing this up for 30 years. He'd obviously, what this was, was a case of Mad Max 2, and and to an extent Mad Max 3, was a brilliant example of what someone could do with what was available in the 80s, right? In terms of action, in terms of special effects, in terms of car chases and what you could film and what you couldn't. And now that more is possible, he didn't do everything with CGI, but more is possible, right? He just saw the possibilities and took his idea to places he couldn't take it before. Do you know what I mean? It's like when James Cameron gets it right, for example, it's because he takes the technology, he takes the stuff that's available and says, I know what you can do with this. Do you know what I mean? And he's not just playing with the toy box. He's actually got an idea for a movie that is now possible because of because of modern developments. And that's why that, I think, works so well. It's because it was as good as Mad Max 2 was, George Miller clearly saw he could do more with the story. But Top Gun Maverick, have you seen Top Gun Maverick yet, mate? 
No, I haven't. I'm not interested in those Top well, Gun films. I mean, I, look, I won't labour the point because the, previ- <laughs> the previous film is very much of the 80s. It's before your time. Frankly, if if when I was 25, someone had brought out a film uh, based on something that had been hugely successful in the 60s, it was an action blockbuster from the 60s. I'm not sure I would care. Do you know what I mean? Colour of Money is a different thing, right? It's Scorsese and the original film wasn't just a dumb blockbuster. It was something special, right? I can see why it's just not for you. I do think probably the audience for Top Gun Maverick is probably majority people who were around for the first film or maybe saw it in the early 90s, whatever, right? But there's still a big fan base for this movie with a... With a there's a, a fine line there to tread with Top Gun Maverick because if they'd made it just like the first film, it would not have worked at all, right? Because top, the first Top Gun film has got ridiculous macho stuff, right? The, you know, these guys with glistening bodies pretending that the whole thing isn't massively homoerotic and kind of, you know, talking to each other with wearing nothing but towels in the in the changing room. I feel the need for speed and high-fiving each other and all of this stuff. It's nonsense, right? But it's beautifully shot. Tony Scott was a fucking artist. It caught Tom Cruise at the perfect time. And the action scenes are amazing, right? The, the storyline is bollocks, but it's satisfyingly done. There's a big action climax at the end. There's an arc for the character. And Tom Cruise in the 80s was was dynamite, okay? That's why it worked. 30 years later, if you just did that, it would be like, fucking hell, man, come on. It's not 1986 anymore. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. He had to do something different. They had to do something a little bit different with Maverick because even though his character name is Maverick, he's got to be more mature this time because it's 30 years later. So how do you do the Maverick character? He's obviously a bit cocky and obviously pushes his limits, but he's, but he's if, if he's not... If, if Maverick is the same person he was 30 years ago, he's an asshole, right? And if he's not, if he's matured too much, it's not going to be as fun as the first film. So there was this incredibly fine line they had to tread to get Top Gun Maverick right. And, and in my opinion, they did get it right because they just found this balance between what people liked from the first film and what should happen now. Do you know what I mean? In a movie. And, yeah. and the reason for that is that it's the way Tom Cruise makes the Mission Impossible films work is that he is so invested in this material that he will die on a fucking hill to get it right. Do you know what I mean? I mean, maybe these new Mission Impossible films are going to be total shit, right? Um, because, you know, maybe it's too late. Maybe Tom Cruise is too old, whatever, whatever. But if you look at Mission Impossible since Ghost Protocol, so that's Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol, um, uh, Rogue Nation and Fallout. And even Mission Impossible 3, which a lot of people aren't super keen on, but I thought that was a step up. And I think he's been on a, on a you know, it's been on an upward trend since then, is that, he knows what works. He knows what people he needs to work with to get this right. He knows what he needed to fix from the, the second film that wasn't quite perfect, and he's kept up with the times. He's absolutely determined that the Mission Impossible films are going to be good, and therefore they are good, right? He's just that fucking determined, and he works with people like Christopher McQuarrie, the writer-director. He works with a set of actors. He clearly has a chemistry with Simon Pegg, so Simon Pegg is coming back to do another Mission Impossible film, whether he likes it or not. And that's why those films work. And I think the reason Top Gun Maverick works is that Tom Cruise was just determined to get it right. Do you know what I mean? And he's got enough yeah. pull and enough power to get it right. He found a director that he worked with before who I actually didn't rate all that much. I thought Joseph Kaczynski was all right. I thought uh, Oblivion was all right. I thought Tron Legacy... I don't think his direction was the problem. I think they got the story wrong. But I wasn't suddenly thinking, oh, wow, I really want to see a Joseph Kaczynski film. Do you know what I mean? But obviously, Tom Cruise had said, I can work with this guy, right? And I I, I know what I can do to get it right. And all the things that Tom Cruise needed to get right, bring bring Val Kilmer back. But I'm not sure if you're aware, Val Kilmer's had um, throat cancer in real life. Um, And he can't speak. He certainly can't speak the way he used to. Um, But you've got to bring Iceman back. How do you do that? 
he found a way. Do you know what I mean? How do you bring um, Tom Cruise back to top to the Top Gun training? Found a way. How does he continue the storyline of Goose, his dead best friend from the first film? He found a way. So, I think what, when when someone is someone like him is absolutely determined to get the sequel right, he gets the sequel right. Do you know what I mean? I mean, there's many ways yeah. in which Top Gun could have been shit if they'd forced out a sequel in 1989. Do you know what I mean? And it's quite possible in 1989 that Tom Cruise would have refused to do it. So, guys, I'm doing something different now. Do you know what I mean? Um, but and it's quite and it's possible for to, for a, a belated sequel 30 years later to fall down because people will go, really? What? Why? Why are you bothering? You know, they did a sequel to Chinatown 20 odd years later, and it just didn't work because it's like, what? This is this doesn't have any meaning anymore to do it. It it it, it was for a certain time, and 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 Top Gun Mavericks is just an example of if if you're going to do a sequel. There's, you know, and I think probably the, the, the kind of almost the handbook you described at the start of the podcast, mate, of what people need to do to make a sequel right. Tom Cruise has got a manual very much like that for making his sequels work, and that's why his sequels work. Yeah, he's very he's very meticulous. Yeah. So yeah, no. So, um, yeah, I mean, there, there, there's sim- there's simpler examples. I mean, you know, the reason there's been lots of Bond films is that Ian Fleming wrote thirteen or fourteen novels. So there's there's a dozen films to make right there, right? Um, people have made loads of Sherlock Holmes films over the years because Conan Doyle wrote about 30 Sherlock Holmes stories. Each one of those is a potential film, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I think one of our one of our listeners said it very well when he said, "In the right circumstances, if you manage to recapture the ma- the magic of the original, and you know, y- y- you can make it work." But I think that, well, what it comes down to, mate, is that you what you said was is that there's got to be a there's got to be a number of elements that are in place to make a sequel work. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No. I think I think we've created the handbook. I think we've yeah. we've solved it. Are there any Are there any sequels you'd like to see? Are there any films that you'd like to see? Um, you know, a, a, a sequel of that that you would be interested in in seeing. Uh, put me on the spot there. Um, <gasps> no, I can't think of one. I mean, can you? Would would you be tempted to um, uh, to to buy a sequel to Inception, or is that uh, no? Yeah, I, I tend to agree. the The way it ends is that you want to know how it ends, but you're never going to know, and that's the whole point. So yeah, yeah, oh, no, that's quite. I mean, obviously, I don't think no one ever 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 would, right? Uh, but yeah, you're right. I mean, that's a really good example. You could you could devalue the original film. Yeah, um, maybe Interstellar because you don't really know what happens with yeah. Anne Hathaway and whether Matthew McConaughey finds her. But at the same time, again, I like the ending. I don't want it spoiled by any mistakes that could happen in the sequel. That's the problem with sequels is that if you like the first film so much to begin with, you don't want it to be spoiled by the second one. So no, I'd I'd leave all my favorite standalone films alone. I think. Yeah. I mean, we'll see what you know what other sequels come out. I mean. Um, maybe that's one that we throw open to the audience. They might come up with something that says, you know, what what film would you like to see a sequel of? I think there's always, like you say, it's always it's always risky. I mean, we're going to see sequels to kind of various superhero films and stuff like that. Um, I'd happily watch another raid film if uh, if if they could persuade Eco OAs to go again. Yeah, maybe I th- that one. I, th- I think I think when when the the the, the attraction of the film is just how completely kick-ass the main person is or there's so much fun to be had from a particular scenario. Those sorts of films can always can always justify 
another sequel. Um, I mean, I've you know I've seen people say that they might like to have seen a sequel to uh, to True Lies because it was a lot of fun seeing Arnold Schwarzenegger in that, and they did kind of hint at like going on to other missions. But I mean, those things can go wrong as well. I mean, I really liked Red, but Red Two just doesn't work as a sequel because about ten minutes in, I went, I know the end of Red hints at them carrying on on their missions, but I'm just, I was satisfied at the end of the first film. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. What about what about District Nine? That no. was quite quite open ended. You wouldn't like to see a sequel to that? No, I think the ending of District Nine is, is that um, the main character is now completely fucked and he's just got to deal with his his new life now. That that's the way I see that film. I don't know about you, but yeah. Um, no, I'm really I'm really struggling. Have you got one film? If you had to pick one film before before we um, you know we wrap up, pick one film for me that you can only have one where you'd love to see a sequel to it. That's a, that's a good one. Um, it's hard, isn't it? You, put, you get really put on the spot there. I've got plenty of films that were sequels or I'd like to see redone. I know that doesn't really count as a sequel, but I can't. I cannot think of many. I mean, if we go back... I mean, if I could you know, think about some of the you know best films of my favourite films... Um, I did love the right stuff. I could happily see another film in the same vein that follows the continuation of the space program. I mean, I would have liked to see someone actually do some good sequels after Aliens. I was, you know, I, I kind of like Alien 3, but I really wish that either David Fincher had been given free reign to make whatever he would have liked to made out of it or that, that they'd done more with the William Gibson storyline. Um, I would have... I think I would have enjoyed seeing um, Quentin Tarantino do more Elmore Leonard stories because I think there's some characters from Jackie Brown there's some characters from the Elmore Leonard world that he could have continued with. Um, I think because I love Elmore Leonard so much, I mean, Out of Sight has got a character, um, the character that Jennifer Lopez plays in that. Um, she has other stories in the in, in Elmore Leonard's stories. I'd have happily seen more Karen Sisko films that she did. Um that that would be something I'd like to have seen. Um, I could have done with maybe. I mean, this is cheating a little bit because these are like characters in books that the writer went on to do more of. But I would have I would have liked to have seen maybe someone else dip into James Elroy's world of books because some of the characters in LA Confidential appear in future books. I'm not sure if that strictly counts as a sequel. But if you went on and did White Jazz, which is a potential one that got away, or um, uh, some of the follow-ups that he did, like American Tabloid, which has got characters from previous books in it, I would, I would like to see some of those stories continue. And I know that those stories are continued in novels. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. Does that count as a sequel if there's more books on the on the same story? I suppose. Um, I could. I know they went and did a TV series uh, called City of Men, which kind of continued some of the story threads of City of God. But I would happily see more stories set in the in the favela of, of Rio, you know, that follow on from City of God, the way the gangster, the gangster world develops there. I could, I could see that if you want to dig in. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's hard. I think I would like to see a series sequel to World War Z, World War Z. Yes. I think if I had to pick... I wouldn't pick a film because I'm fully into my TV shows right now because that's how you flesh characters out. World War Z should have been a series in the first and place. Yeah, and it's you could just because the way it's the way it's kind of 
written is that one chapter set in South Korea and one chapter set in America and etc. Mm. That's the way I would do it personally. I would, I would like to see a sequel to. I would, actually, I would like to have seen um, sequels to Daniel Craig's uh, Mikhail Blomkvist, uh, Blomkvist. So, a girl with a dragon tattoo. Or the girl with the dragon tattoo. I'd like to see David Fincher complete that trilogy. Yeah, I mean, it's a shame that's not going to happen now. Um, I think that comes down to. I mean, those films did all right. They didn't do amazing money at the box office. They did all right. I don't think David Fincher enjoyed the experience with working with the studio on that, which is possibly well, why he. Because yeah, what what he ended up doing was going off and doing television. Because it's like I fucking hate the studio interfering in what I'm doing. Um, and yeah. that's why he spent most of the 2010s not making films. Um, if I had to pick one, then it would be a series sequel to World War Z, World War Z. Okay, all right. And if I were going to pick one, I would say uh, I would like someone to dig into the. Um... Oh, I tell you what, I tell you what deserves a sequel. I will throw this out. I'd love to have seen them carry on the, the Judge Dredd films and see and do sequels to those. Cracking. There is talk of a Mega City One TV series, and Carl Urban said he was interested in, in making it. It's all gone very quiet, and I hope that's just COVID, and I hope that's still alive, because I'd love to see that. Mega City One would be a great setting for more films, uh, but it's going to be TV. But I would love to them see, see my, make more Dread films, because I think those were that was amazing, that one. But you're right, that, and I think both you and I, because we, you, know, you can't sit here and like say franchises are going stale. And hate all the remakes and and and, and criticize things like that and not and not have. I think we've got a natural free reflex to go. I'm I'm not going to automatically agree to a sequel. Do you know what I mean? Because even if it's even if I'd like to see the sequel, I'm still nervous about it being wrong. Do you know what I mean? Going wrong, you know. Yeah. Um. So, you know, it's it's a matter. But people will try and make a sequel to anything. I mean, they made a sequel to 2001: A Space Odyssey, which was a brave move. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's quite brave. Um. I mean, they, there was a book to base it on, right? So, you know, that, that makes it easier. But uh, but there you go. Okay, so we managed to dig deep and cu- come up with a couple of thoughts there. That would have been a bit of a flop way to end the end the, the, the pod if, I, if we'd not <laughs> had to come up any examples to that. Uh, but uh, was there anything else you wanted to say about sequel syndrome, mate? No, I think we covered it. Lovely. Well, thank you very much for your participation, mate. Thank you very much, you at home, for listening. I um, hope you enjoy this, and we'll be back with another uh, big conversation some other time. That's all for this month's episode of Double Reel. Thanks for listening and for making it all the way to the end. Thanks also to my co-host, James Adamson. The podcast was edited in Audacity and hosted on Anchor FM. We're grateful for their continued support. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. Two Days in the Valley is available to stream or buy from digital platforms. The story of Isobar is told in Tales from Development Hell by David Hughes. Various snippets of design and concept art can be found at giantfreakingrobot.com. Outside of Double Reel, you can find us both hosting a non-film related podcast, The Adamson's Verses. Our latest episode the adamson's versus the combat dolphins is out now so this is me james adamson signing off and this is me james adamson signing off our next episode will be our regular episode 29 next month please keep an eye out for any special episodes we decide to do in the future if you enjoyed this podcast please like and subscribe and tell your friends until next time stay safe watch lots of films and may your life be as awesome as you pretend it is on social media i don't have a sign off obi come sign off you think that everyone listening should give us a million pounds? Well, the dog's spoken. <laughs>